respect the game by respecting your teammates, your fans, no matter who they are. I will always stand up for my teammates, no matter who they are. I understand Char. If you can play, you can play. If you can play, you can play. Generally speaking, we start out the show with a highlight, maybe something that happened during the week, maybe a classic play from someone who's going to predominantly be a part of the show, but we wanted to do something a little bit different this week and open with a PSA from the guys over at YouCanPlayProject.org. And what You Can Play is, is a initiative started by Patrick Burke, who is the son of Brian Burke, the general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs, and the brother of the late Brendan Burke, who was the equipment manager for the Miami of Ohio hockey team. The thing about Brendan was that he tragically passed away in a car accident just a few short months after he had the guts to stand up for himself and admit that he was a homosexual. And he was one of the very first people in the sports world to kind of come out. And he wasn't a player, um, but in the wake of his death, his brother and his family have started this fantastic organization. And you hear Zidane Ochara and Jason Pominville in that PSA that we played and it's basically just saying, you know, if you can play, you can play. It doesn't matter if you're gay, if you're straight, if you're white, if you're black, anything like that. And that's really what the organization is about. And a little bit later in the show, Patrick Burke is going to join us to talk more about that. But welcome to the Sportscasters. It is Season 2, Episode 11, March 20th, 2012 in beautiful, sunny Western New York. No kidding. 75 degrees in March. In March, yep. Uh, like I said, Patrick Burke's going to be joining us today. Also, Neil Best from Newsday. He's been on the show a few times before. He's going to join us to talk about the NCAA basketball tournament. He was live in Pittsburgh uh, covering the basketball games there. And also, Damon Hack, who is one of our favorites. Just an absolute class, class guy. He's going to join us to talk about all the happenings in the National Football League, and also do some golf stuff. He's down in Orlando covering the Ar- Arnold Palmer Invitational. He wears two big hats for Sports Illustrated, does some football, does some golf. He's kind of focusing on golf, but we're going to talk to him about both. I uh, want to remind everyone, last week, Season 2, Episode 10, we had Luke Wynn, Andrew Lawrence, and Todd Fritz. Todd Fritz, of course, we had on kind of talking about what if his Broncos would get Peyton Manning? And they did. They sure did. Yeah. So we're going to talk about that in a bit in three things. Also today, we're going to give you our list of the top 10 NHL players right now. Our opinion right now. And that's uh, the idea came from a top 50 list that the Hockey News published. We'll talk about that more when we get to it. We're also going to update the book club. We're going to do pick four. But as always, before we can get to any of that, we have to start with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. 
One. Alrighty, I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever! <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep! Now let's move on to other business. I hope when I was talking last week about Peyton Manning to the Broncos, it was on the air. I can't exactly remember, but I had been saying that, to me, made the most sense. I know you'll hear from other people in the media that it doesn't make sense, but if you're Peyton, I think you you don't need the money. Nope. You've got the Super Bowl ring. You're only coming back to prove that you basically can come back, and what better way to do that than to go to just a terrible division? Uh, this team won their division with Tim Tebow last year. They have some decent young receivers. Demarius Thomas. Demarius Thomas. Very good. Very yeah, talented. Looks like a good player. They did lose uh, someone to New England. Brandon Lloyd, I think, went to New England. But I'm sure he's going to do what he can to uh, get wide receivers around him. And, again, I never liked the idea of him playing in the NFC because if you had the choice, why would you want to knock your brother out of the playoffs or why would you want right. to be knocked out by your brother? So Denver, to me, seems like like the perfect fit for him. Yeah, I th- I think I said on the show Arizona uh, made a lot of sense to me. But, hey, Denver, what a great place. They have great fans. They have a great stadium. John Elway played there. You know, it's uh, it's they have a great young receiver in Demarius Thomas. Players are going to want to come there now to be with Peyton. So, sure, yeah. you know, it's not like you can't get more wide receivers down there if you think that that's a need. And I think Peyton Manning and John Elway, they have the chance to have this kind of really unique relationship that no other owner and quarterback in sports can have. John Elway is one of the few people in the world who knows what it's like to play quarterback at the level that Peyton Manning plays it. And I think it's going to be a very unique relationship between them. But I think what stands out about this story most to me is the teams that didn't get Peyton and what the effect on those teams is going to be. Right. You have a team like the Tennessee Titans who pushed really hard to get Peyton Manning. What message did that send to Jay Locker? Yeah, what's interesting with almost all the teams. with the San Francisco is right. another one. What did that mean to Alex Smith, who they still need to convince to come back there? Right. With the exception of, I believe, Miami, all of those teams have quarterbacks that they drafted relatively recently and thought maybe could be the guy. Obviously, none of those guys are Peyton Manning. And high picks. Alex Smith, first overall pick. Jay Locker, first round pick. Yep. And now you hear uh, some rumblings. or Everyone expects that Tim Tebow is going to go to Jacksonville. Well, they just spent a high pick on Blaine Blaine Gabbard. Top 10. 10 pick. There's all these. uh, And Matt Flynn also didn't end up going to Miami. Ended up going to Seattle. So... Miami uh, was the one team that really didn't have anybody to offend. I mean, obviously they have quarterbacks there, but they're not of the stature or draft status that some of these other guys are. And they missed out on all of them. So it'll be interesting to see what Miami does. Maybe they go after Tim Tebow. But uh, the second biggest shoe to fall or best defensive player was uh, Mario Williams, who we talked about at the end, how he was going to come visit with Buffalo first. And, they did what they needed to do, and they didn't let him get back on a plane with a contract nope. or without a contract. So, good good job to Buffalo. Buddy Nix kind of had a "we told you so" attitude at the press conference, and I, on the one hand, they've been bad for so long. You, you want him to kind of 
maybe curb that a little bit. But on the other hand, I guess you want your GM to say, look, we were just waiting for the right guy and this is it and we've got him. You know, I'm really excited for the Bills about it. I was really disappointed last Tuesday night when Robert Meacham yeah. kind of, it almost seemed used them a little bit. You know, he was here in Buffalo sitting down at Temple Restaurant eating a steak and negotiating a contract with the like San Diego six Chargers. Six and a half million dollars a year. A lot of money for a guy who was the number three receiver in New Orleans. Right. And I maybe, I mean, he He's a good obviously player. attracted a lot of attention. Right. Yep. But man, that's that's a lot, and they needed somebody because Vincent Jackson left. And we've seen that wide receivers have gotten paid this year. Yeah, you know Pierre Garcon, we talked about last yeah. year, got a huge he got contract. Crazy money. Yeah. You know Colston got a huge contract. Jackson, you know all these wide receivers. That's apparently a priority for teams. You know if this is going to be a passing league, makes sense that quarterbacks and wide receivers are going to be paid very handsomely. And another wide receiver uh, who's no longer in that of that ilk is uh Heinz Ward and he is going to retire a lifetime stealer. And I guess my question to you is that's just because he couldn't find a team, right? Possibly. Who knows though? There might've been a, t- you know what? With Heinz Ward, I bet his idea was if I'm going to play for another team besides the Steelers, they better be really it's going to have to be one of these teams. And I'm sure he had right. a few in mind that fit, but when maybe those options weren't available, the option to retire was maybe the best one for him. Right. And I think that that helps him ultimately in terms of his legacy. You sure, know, the yeah. idea of him being a one-team player and that team being Pittsburgh, the way that he played and how he associated playing that way with the way people in that city worked, you know, the kind of blue-collar blocking wide receiver he was he fits so nicely there that i think there was probably only a limited amount of teams that he was willing to go to and maybe when those jobs didn't present themselves he decided that retiring was an option it'd be interesting to ask damashek if he's a hall of famer because i think we had this conversation when he filled out his all-time stealer list and i think ward got left off behind the two right stalworth and uh swan swan right he's so close he's the ultimate He's maybe the ultimate guy for the argument of, well, if you have to make a case, then he's not a Hall of Famer because he is someone that you have to make a case for. Right. You know, and some people don't don't like those kinds of players ending up in the Hall of Fame. Because it's his intangibles that, I mean, they don't have a stat for wide receiver uh, Blocking. blocking. So He's close. I don't know if he'll get it. It's been historically very hard, as we've seen, for wide receivers to get in. When it'll be interesting to see when he is eligible, who else, who is, else right. is still in that field. You know, wh- this Chris Carter, Tim Brown, Andre, Andre Reid log jam yeah. is going to play itself out eventually. Either none of them are going to get in, or one of them is going to get in, or two of them are going to get in. So it's going to be interesting to see how that shakes out. Another football story, obviously, the J- Tim Tebow. Now, what happens with him? Now that Peyton Manning is there. Obviously, Tim Tebow is not going to be the starting quarterback in Denver anymore. Right. He said pretty emphatically that quarterback is what he wants to do in this league. He really doesn't want to be a Cordell Stewart type, although that's where I think he fits best in right. the league. But some of the teams thrown out, I know Mel Kuyper has a column up today suggesting Jacksonville and Miami, the Florida places obviously right. make a lot of sense. Also, New England has been out there, not that he would unseat Tom Brady, but that 
Bill Belichick is maybe the most creative mind in football in terms of utilizing players kind of all over the field, the way he's used Tim Brown and Edelman as cornerbacks. You know, maybe in that system he can find a really nice package for I, I think if Tebow's Tebow. willing to do that, then I think that's a team that could make that work because of the examples you gave. But if he's not willing to do that, he's not going to unseat Mallet as the number two, right? I mean, they, Mallet has all the physical tools right. of a prototypical quarterback. You're not going to put Yeah, it's not a, a great place to go him. and be a backup. Now, another interesting thing is if San Francisco strikes out with Alex Smith, yeah. is that a place for him where maybe he could definitely compete with uh, Kaepernick and uh, – Who's the other guy there? There's another guy there that you know could potentially something like Justin Smith or something like that. Uh, some other college. Donna will look it up, but also Cleveland is a spot. Cleveland only has Colt McCoy right yeah. now, so that's somewhere where maybe he could compete. So it'll be interesting to see what happens next uh, for Tebow. Tracy Porter still without a team. There were some minor signings. Uh, t- uh, I can't think of his first name. Mike Tolbert. Went to Carolina, who is maybe a, more of a household name if you're a fantasy football player. Yep, Landry, Landry, went, Landry to went to the Jets. Jets. Scott Wells, this is, a again, not a household name. I had to like read about him a little bit, but he is a Pro Bowl center from the Packers now moving to St. Louis. So St. Louis already kind of retooling a little bit around uh, Sam Bradford. And, again, we talked last week about it. you got to like what they're doing. They're, they're getting the line short up. Now they've got all those draft picks. Uh, that should be a real interesting team. It's got to be an exciting time to be a fan of St. Louis. They're and they have be a great coach and Fisher. Good, but yeah, probably going to have to think about what they're going to do with defensive, defensive coordinator, coordinator for a few year. games. Yeah, uh, the Titans who are moving on now from Manning uh, signed today Cameron Wimbley from the Oakland Raiders, and that was a big need for them, pass rusher. So they filled that need. What else happened in the NFL? We mentioned Meacham kind of spurning the bills a little bit. Let me ask you a question about Mario Williams. And now that it is a reality, here he is here. And um, it's a huge deal. I think the Bills sent a message maybe that they can compete in this league with the biggest of the big. But they're going to go to a 4-3 now. That's what you think makes the most sense, right? Him playing defensive end as opposed to linebacker like Houston experimented with. The strange thing even about that last year going to the the 3-4 was they had two guys that are built to play in the middle. Now their ends were terrible. Uh, They had Chris Kelsey and your name here playing the other end. But their linebackers might have been the weakest position on the field, and they had four of them on the field at all times. And so this right away, you take a linebacker off the field, or, and you have guys playing in positions they should. And the your name here player has been replaced with a guy that was about a sack a game player when he was healthy. So I think defensive end might be the second most impactful position on the field. Obviously, quarterback is number one. This one can mask a lot of holes. Uh, if if he can stay healthy, then I, I the defense should improve drastically. I think another thing that we've learned in the last week, if we didn't know it already, is that the NFL is a full-year sport. There's no off-season, really. And despite the lockout, and the lockout did a lot of the strike, and missing the World Series did a lot of damage to baseball, 
the NFL has recovered from it. Obviously, they didn't miss any games other than the Hall of Fame game, right? Which the Saints are going to play in this year. What's left of the Saints <laughs> <laughs> after the commissioner gets done with them? But uh, yeah, the NFL is uh, is the uh, it's it. Absolutely. Uh, our second thing this week, I don't have anything else in the NFL. If, if no, let's move on. All right, uh, there's this tournament going on this week. I've heard of it. Yeah, some people uh, like to fill out brackets and all that good stuff. So far, pretty crazy tournament. We've had uh, two number two seeds fall to a 15. I am not, obviously, an NCAA historian, but that's got to be pretty historic. Has that ever happened before? Yeah, I think that Syracuse losses a two. I think there's been about four or five before this year. But since then, actually, the upsets have kind of gone away. We were talking. Yeah, not a ton of Cinderella has made this week 16. Um, Ohio. Ohio and uh, North Carolina North State Carolina is an State. 11 that's, seed, that's really, although they're yeah. a big, big conference team. Yeah, that's, that's really the – and that's even stretching a little bit to call them Cinderella's. But uh, Syracuse has lived through their – Yeah, let's suspension. talk about that first Syracuse game a bit. This was really interesting to me. It was one of the very first games of the tournament. It was the first game that was really, really interesting. And Syracuse was really tested by UNC Asheville. A 16 seed. One has never lost to a 16. And Syracuse, without the help of the refs maybe, might have lost that game. There was two calls that were in question. One was a lane violation call, which was explained after the game by the letter of the law As being was right. the correct call. Right. The other play happened when a ball, a pass was inbounded and there was some contact there, and the ball ended up going out of bounds, clearly off of the Syracuse player. Now, initially when the whistle was blown, everyone thought it was a, there was going to be a foul called on Asheville. There wasn't. Just It was just cleared out, and the refs blew it and gave the ball to Syracuse. Now, after the game, I was really impressed with the head of officials in the NCAA came on the air with the crew for CBS, and he basically explained why the first call was right and admitted why the second call was wrong. He really handled it really, really well. For me, someone who is a casual basketball fan, I got to really understand what was right and wrong about the lane violation, and I thought they handled that well. A couple couple other things from the tournament. Uh, Florida State was tested by St. Bonaventure here in western New York. St. Bonaventure basically led all day until the end, couldn't close it out. Florida State then eventually lost. All four number one seeds advanced. Syracuse, Kentucky, Ohio State, and or Michigan State, I'm sorry, and um, the Kansas. fourth one. Kansas. Kansas is a two. Um. Uh, <laughs> wait. Okay, so Kentucky, definitely. Syracuse. Syracuse, Michigan State. And the fourth one, North Carolina. Okay. <laughs> so those four teams uh, advanced. Going, going back real quick to Syracuse, you were yeah. talking about how the refs or the league official or head of officials handled it really yeah. well and classy. One guy who has not come off as classy to me, and for a semi-local team, I guess they should almost be like my hometown team now that Bonaventure isn't right. in it and UB didn't make it. and. Syracuse Jim Beheim is having like an all-time bad year for a coach. Terrible. Uh, they have the scandal. 
uh, Bernie Fine, is that his name? Yep. At the beginning of the year that he vehemently denies, and it turns out to be all true. Uh, they have, we talked about a few weeks back, players breaking their own rules set in place without any issues. Right, the lack of institutional control that appears to be right. at Syracuse. Then they have the player suspended. Uh, Fab Mello. Fab Mello, right. And then after the game, we have the head of officials explain why the call was wrong. And the best he can do is say that uh, the better – the when asked, like, if maybe he felt he got lucky or if the better team lost that day, he said, well, that's why they have scoreboards, basically – He's just come off really. He's smug, kind of looking like a jerk. Yeah. yeah, he's really smug. I told, I think I told the story on the podcast last week about how the high school basketball coach at my high school kind of knew Beheim, I think, from kind of coming up together, and told me once that he's not a good dude. Doesn't sound like it. He doesn't. Yeah. He isn't looking good. You know, some other impressions from the tournament. Thursday was really boring. There was a lot of chalk on Thursday. Yeah. Friday was great. Friday was probably everything you can love about March Madness with the upsets, the near upsets. You know, we had the two number two seeds go down on Friday. We had St. Bonaventure almost beat Florida State. And then in the weekend, I don't know. It wasn't great. Sunday, the games went way too late. Sunday night, we shouldn't have to be up until past midnight watching an NCAA tournament game. We're going to talk about that with Neil Best later. I thought the scheduling of the tournament's been odd. I thought the coverage has been really strong. I think the studio team with Seth Davis and Charles Barkley has done a really good job, and everyone knows I don't like Seth Davis, but I think that they've done a really good job. So it's been somewhat of an uneven tournament. They got some good matchups this weekend, especially with all the number one seeds. There's a lot of big programs in this thing still. You know, there's the Kansas, there's North Carolina, there's Kentucky, there's Syracuse, there's Michigan State, Ohio State. Four teams from the Big Ten, four teams from the Big East. So there's a lot of stuff there. You got the one Cinderella team kind of sticking around. Then you got the intrigue of North Carolina losing their point guard to a broken wrist. You know, can they still be a factor in this tournament? So the NCAA tournament, I think what we're seeing is it is what we thought it was. It's a great sporting event. Brackets are fun. Missouri, who we didn't mention as being the other number two that went down, right. you know, they were the first team to kind of ruin a bunch of brackets. Same with Florida State and Duke. Uh, I heard that President Obama is in the 98th percentile. Really? With his, his bracket, he was one of the 18% of ESPN.com uh, players that had NC State in the <laughs> Sweet 16. So, yeah, it was a fun first weekend. Not as fun on Thursday and Sunday, maybe, but Friday and Saturday were good. So we'll see how it is this weekend. All right, I have an answer for you. Um, I'm not sure who I was thinking about. Their defensive tackle is Justin Smith, so I'm on the wrong side of the ball totally. Their third-string quarterback now, technically their second string, I guess, is Scott Tolzian, oh. a rookie out of Wisconsin. So I know nothing about him. So they're either looking at Colin Kaepernick in the Scott Tolzian show or – they better sign Alex Smith they better woo or Alex Smith. Yeah. get someone else. Yep. All right. That was kind of our first. We combined the first two things. One, there. I want to go back to our first thing. We we missed something completely, and that was Matt Flynn going to the Seahawks. Yeah, I think I mentioned it. Just Did in, you mention it? Any thoughts bit, on that? Where he ended up? I, Tavares I think Jackson a, versus him. It's one of them weird things where everyone just expected him to go to Miami. Uh, maybe I'm a little surprised he didn't. But if you're Miami, you traded away your best receiver. I don't know why you... 
how you're going to attract quarterbacks by doing that. But again, we talked maybe Brandon Marshall's just that bad a dude. My, or you actually go. Okay. We did the combined. Right. First two yeah, things. we combined our first two things. So here's our third thing. Uh, my third thing is Jaden Swartz. Uh, is a hockey player for the St. Louis Blues. Just a few weeks ago, he was a hockey player for Colorado College. Colorado College ended their season, and Jaden Swartz signed an NHL contract with the St. Louis Blues, and he scored his first NHL goal in his first NHL game. A couple of really interesting things about Jaden Swartz I wanted to mention. One, he spent two years playing in the World Junior Championships for Canada. The first year when the tournament was in Buffalo, he suffered an ankle injury and missed most of the tournament. And then last season, or last winter, when he played in the tournament, Canada obviously uh, suffered uh, another loss to Russia and fell short of their ultimate goal. He also had a younger sister who was a D1 hockey player at Yale who died tragically of cancer. I don't know if you remember hearing about that story. Um, It was something that was covered a bit when she was struggling with the disease. So finally, some really good news for the Jaden Swartz family. Uh, Jaden played in the USHL. Uh, my brother played against him there. He's Jaden's the first player from the USHL that my brother played against to score an NHL goal. Oh, cool. He played his two years at Colorado College with his brother, which I'm sure was a great experience. Now he's in the pros playing for St. Louis, the number one team in the National Hockey League. We'll get a chance to follow Jaden here as he uh, – we'll see if he's going to be a part of their roster – um, moving forward. So it's a really exciting time for Jaden Swartz, and I wanted to congratulate him on scoring his first National Hockey League goal. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, my last thing this week, strange occurrence kind of out of the out of the NCAA tournament. The Southern Miss is going to take disciplinary action against their own students for derogatory chants against a Puerto Rican basketball player from – I'm uh, – from Kansas State. Kansas State. That's yep. right. Sorry. That's okay. Uh, the chant, I guess, was, where's your green card? Which, A, yeah. doesn't show much intelligence because the player is Puerto Rican, which is like a commonwealth of the United States, and you're not required to no. have a green card no. or anything to play here. Yeah, they just had their primary. They take a part in electing the U.S. president. Right. The player's name is Angel Rodriguez, and he actually was pretty classy about the whole thing. Uh, he said... That I heard it. I don't pay attention to that nonsense, especially because Puerto Rico is a commonwealth, so we don't need no type of papers. <laughs> <laughs> so he knows the obviously knows the laws, and he said their athletic director and personnel from their school came to apologize, and I accepted it. He realizes that there are quote ignorant people. I know it's not how they want to represent their university. So these players or these students are pep band pep band members, and I I'm guessing that's why they were able to suspend them. Because when we kind of talked about this story off the air, you mentioned that that seems like a little bit of a slippery slope because players, or sorry, fans go to games and they do get stupid and they chant some stupid things. And usually it's derogatory. Uh, I've heard some bad stuff right? You know, over the years. Probably a lot worse than where's your green card. Right. So to think about losing scholarships, I mean, it's not classy for sure, but to think about losing scholarships for maybe being a little stupid at a game is scary and like you said, it's, it might be a slippery slope, but these were people that were there 
representing the school. Yeah, that's the thing. Right. That's the thing right there is they're representing the university. Yeah, they're in your they're in their uniforms or whatever, right. and chanting that type of stuff. So. I actually give the university credit for stepping in. The more I've thought about this, I give them credit for stepping in and, and saying that that's just not acceptable. That's not what we want this university to represent. Right. You were talking about when you went to Cornell to watch a hockey game, how a lot of energy, and it's not just Cornell. I'm sure it's at all schools, but a lot of energy is wasted, or not wasted, but a lot of the effort and cheering goes into cheering against the visiting team, not for the home team. Right, and we witnessed that firsthand when we were in Philadelphia. We were in Philadelphia a couple of years ago for a Pearl Jam concert, and it happened to coincide with the World Series. And I think both of us, oh, right. both of us had the attitude that we were going to be down there when the games were being paid, played in Philadelphia. We might end up we might end up Philly. kind of rooting for Philly, right. but it was such a turnoff just the way that they were so anti-Yankees instead of just being pro Phillies, right? That we kind of ended up kind of rooting for the Yankees in a way. Oh, I think so. Yeah, yeah. So, like you said, there's a lot of that in college, and you can't get away from, it, but you can't be wearing the school colors, the school uniform particularly and get away with it. And these kids that are going to learn a tough lesson, a really tough lesson. Cause first of all, you're, you're in college because you're a band geek. You got a scholarship <laughs> that way. You know, now you're going to have to transfer, find out about the world of student loans, which yeah, are no fun. They not only got their scholarships revoked, but they were also removed from the band. So don't get I, to play your instrument anymore. At least right, not that, competitively. That's, that's, it's a rough punishment, but, uh, like you said, good for the school. They're, they're drawing the line. All right. That's it for three things. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with Damon Hack. Our next guest is from Los Angeles, California, and is a graduate of UCLA. He then went on to UC Berkeley, where he earned a master's degree in journalism. Professionally, he has covered the San Francisco 49ers for the Sacramento Bee and the New York Knicks for Newsday. He then moved on to cover golf in the NFL for the New York Times. Today, he is a senior writer for Sports Illustrated, covering golf and the NFL. He is making his fourth appearance on the Sportscasters, and a warm welcome to the very talented Damon Hack. How are you doing today, Damon? I'm doing great, Stephen. How are you? Doing really good. How are the three boys doing? <laughs> They're doing really well. Just celebrated their nine-month uh, nine birthday. They're laughing and crawling and getting big. They're, they're doing all the things that they should be doing at this age. It's been special. It's tiring. I'm an ace uh, diaper changer, so that's <laughs> a, I guess that's a good thing. Do you have to tie ribbons around their fingers, like a red, a blue, and an orange one, or are they uh, really easy to tell apart? They're easy to tell apart. They're a fraternal triplets, and okay, good. they're very distinct in, in appearance and in personality. We're finding already uh, three very different boys, but they're uh, tremendous, and, and they're a lot of fun. Well, we'd love to get the update because I just think about my partner across the way here since we talked last, had his first first baby, a little girl named Molly, but that's only one baby. You know, and, uh, <laughs> Congratulations. Thanks, thank you. Hey, it's all hard work. It's beautiful, but it's work. One, two, three. I mean, it's uh, it's definitely a challenge, but uh, there's nothing like 
having uh, having children, especially having babies, is such a a special stage. And obviously, that's the stage that that goes really fast. And and then next thing you know, they're they're going to be talking back to you and asking for the car keys. <laughs> well. Here's one thing that we want. This is this is really what I'm excited to find out your opinion, because it took us by shock. Believe me, when the NFL free agency period began and the word came out that the number one, let's put Peyton Manning aside for a second. Uh, we'll just say this: the number one defensive free agent on the market, maybe the number one defensive free agent since Reggie White in 1993 was coming to Buffalo, where we are, of all places, and he never left. He signed here. And I want to know from someone who we're right on top of it, you know, and it's sometimes it's hard when you're when you're so close to something. I want to know what your impression of it, away from it was. What was your impression, first of all, when you heard he was just gonna come, did you think maybe initially that he was using Buffalo, as some people did, especially when he didn't sign the first day. And then when he did sign, what was your reaction that Mario Williams was actually going to be a bill? Yeah, I'd say it was surprise all the way. I mean, when you're a free agent, you kind of have to do your due diligence. And, and I tell you, the, the reputation of the Bills, you know, historically I think it's been a strong one, but of late has not been a place where you think about luring the Reggie White type of free agent, the Peyton Manning type of free agent, the real kind of game-changing, franchise-changing move. So obviously they had uh, Terrell Owens uh, a couple of years ago, and then that obviously didn't really uh, bear much fruit. But I was I was impressed when I heard that he was going there. I wasn't sure that they'd really have a good shot to land him, but obviously they opened up their wallets, and they obviously feel that with him, and I think he felt the same way, that they've got some really good defensive pieces. And I think at the end of the day, I think that great players want to be around greatness. And you're talking about a defensive line that already has some good pieces, like Kyle Williams, for example, Kelsey's there, Darius is there, and you're talking about plugging in a guy that will make everyone, not only make everyone around him better, but also make him better. So I like the Reggie White comparison because he was one of those guys that really brought the Green Bay Packers back after a really kind of a long, dry spell. And a lot of people are hoping that uh, Mario Williams, especially in your neck of the woods, can do uh, for Buffalo what Reggie White did for Green Bay. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because the Bills have been kind of playing around with a 3-4 the last two years, but now Dave Wanstead's here. He says we're going to go back. Their Bills are going to go back to the 4-3. You know, you're going to have Mario Williams on the left, maybe Kelsey on the right, or if they decide to draft a, a defensive uh, end still, which I would, wouldn't expect. Then you have the two great guys in the middle in Darius and in um, Kyle Williams. So it seems right away like, you know, they've really made a, a good good improvement to the team. And, you know, when I, I think the impression of the Bills has been they're a team that they don't keep their own players. They're like a training ground, you know, especially, you know, you look at Nate, Cle- Nate Clements. He's a guy who that they – but they change that a little bit by signing Stevie Johnson. Then they get heavily involved. They get the big free agent. When you think of the Bills, a lot of people, especially who aren't around, think, you know, that's a team that's kind of playing out the string in Buffalo. They're going to be in Toronto someday or maybe L.A. Does this change that impression? Does that make people think that Buffalo can be a big league team in the National Football League still? 
I think it can, and uh, you have to remember that they were. I mean, this is a team that went to four straight Super Bowls, you know, a couple of decades ago. Buffalo was a great organization and a very proud organization. And I think when you see a team able to re-sign a Stevie Johnson or, or Ryan Fitzpatrick and able to make a move like this, it's going to open up some eyes. And, and from a personnel standpoint, you know, you look at that AFC East, everything runs through New England. Everything is about beating New England and stopping Tom Brady. And this is the kind of move that, you know, perhaps the, the New England Patriots have to kind of counter. It'll be interesting to see what they do in the draft. They've got some older offensive linemen. So maybe this will cause the, the Patriots to spend an extra pick or two on offensive linemen because winning that division is all about getting to the quarterback. We saw the Jets do it um, a couple of years ago, being able to go up to New England and beat the Patriots in a playoff game by really – battering Tom Brady. Obviously, the Giants have had success doing that in the Super Bowl against Tom Brady. And I think you're watching the Bills kind of build a blueprint or follow the, the blueprint that's been successful in overcoming the New England Patriots. And for the Bills to do that and to become a team that, you know, flips that, you know, 6-10 and 10 or 5-11 and 11 around, you've got to be able to sack the quarterback. You've got to be able to sweep or at least to split more regularly uh, against the New England Patriots. Obviously, the other big thing that has been going on in the NFL world has been Peyton Manning. Uh, he's in Denver. They introduced him today. I'm looking at a picture right now. It's a big smile on Peyton Manning's face, as big as he could probably make it. John Elway, big, big smile on his face. <laughs> what do you think about, first of all, the pursuit of Manning, the the teams that were involved, and then him ultimately ending up in Denver. Did that surprise you? Was that where you expected? What do you think about the whole Peyton Manning uh, whirlwind that we've been in here the last week or so? Very fascinating. You know, I did not expect him to end up in Denver, but it really kind of tells you, it told me a couple of things. A, that the Miami Dolphins are really viewed as an organization in disarray that can't seem to land the big player um, or the big coach. They went after Harbaugh last year. Obviously, that fell apart. You can't get Peyton Manning. You can't get Matt Flynn. To me, that shows kind of what the view of the organization is from players. There's no other louder statement than, than seeing these players either you know flee or, or decide against playing in a in a beautiful city. You know, in a in a, in a warm weather town. Um, in a team that has also some history uh, on its side as well with with Dan Marino. But uh, watching this unfold with Peyton was, was very fascinating and interesting to see whether he'd end up in the AFC or the NFC. Would he, you know, want to compete against Eli, you know, more immediately instead of possibly waiting for a Super Bowl, maybe meeting for a playoff game? And a lot of people said he would not sign with an NFC team. They didn't do that. But I love hearing the conversation uh, that, that John Elway had today about just the, the fact that they were able to talk, you know, quarterback to quarterback, and, and what guy would be more, you know, able to talk about being an older quarterback winning Super Bowls than John Elway or Peyton Manning, and you got to think when those two guys were alone together in a room, they're having conversations that really very few people on the planet can have, can understand, the talk offensive philosophy together, um, the respect that Peyton Manning has for the guys that came before him is immense. He's an incredible scholar of the game, of quarterbacking, of the quarterback position, of offensive philosophy. It just seemed that this was the, the, the right fit for Peyton Manning. He, he stays in the AFC. He goes to a team with a great defense. 
that made the playoffs last year and won a game last year in the playoffs beating the Steelers. Uh, it's going to be fascinating to see how healthy he is. Uh, obviously, he's going to be hungry. He'll work very, very hard. There's going to be doubts about his health, you know, what happens when he takes that first shot. But, but right now, it's really, really just a, a great story that we're watching unfold here in March, really proving that the NFL remains a year-round sport. Yeah, and you know, one thing about this Manning story that's maybe a little bit different than the Williams story is that there's a lot of ripples that kind of are coming off of this Manning thing. First of all, San Francisco did a little bit more than just flirt with Manning. Their quarterback from last year is also a free agent. Do you think that Alex Smith is willing to now go back there after they kind of chose Manning over him, so to speak. Can and, and it seems like Harbaugh, since he's been there, has almost wanted anyone but Alex Smith. And Alex Smith had a fantastic season last year, won a playoff game there. Is he spurned now or is he willing to do you think, in your opinion, just your opinion, I, I'm not you know, I don't have any reason to think that you know for sure, it's just an opinion. Do you think that 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 marriage can still work between those two guys? I, I do think it would work. You're talking about a, a quarterback in Alex Smith that's already had what four head coaches, seven offensive coordinators. Yeah. Uh, I don't think he wants to go, you know, necessarily uh, and, and start fresh. It, 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 obviously, it didn't work out uh, in Miami. They signed David Garrard, uh, who hadn't played for a year. The, the Niners obviously didn't work out getting Peyton Manning. I think if Alex Smith had a more decorated professional football career, had he had four really good seasons in a row and more than one run to the playoffs, he might have a little bit more reason to be upset. But you're talking about a quarterback who really had only one good season in his career, who made the playoffs, yes, you're talking about a team that was pursuing maybe the best quarterback of this era, one of the top five quarterbacks of all time. As Tim Tebow said, he, you know, Tim Tebow told John Elway, look, I understand you're talking about Peyton Manning. I think Alex Smith will view the San Francisco courtship in a similar light that Tim Tebow did in Denver. Well, you bring up Tim Tebow, and that's kind of the next thing. Peyton Manning has always had a pretty faceless backup. You know, he did obviously wasn't interested in being in Indianapolis with Andrew Luck there. Uh, you know, we talk about Curtis Painter and, um, you know, really some just nameless guys that have been behind him. So it seems like the Broncos are going to have to find a new place for Tebow. Where do you think he fits? And what is a guy like Tim Tebow worth on the market? Yeah, that's a great question, all of those. And, you know, you heard Peyton Manning saying the right things, that he would love to, to play with Tim Tebow and be a teammate of his. And I believe that he does think that because unlike Andrew Luck, Tim Tebow is a little bit more of an inconsistent quarterback, a little bit more of an uh, – even though we've watched him play, you know, take a team to the playoffs and win these incredible fourth-quarter comebacks. He's still not your traditional, you know, drop-back quarterback who has all the kind of measurables that you expect out of a quarterback coming out of a combine. So I think it's going to be great and fun to see what teams are willing to take a, a shot at Tim Tebow. You know, Jacksonville seems like a, a natural. I don't know if they're going to be interested in the GM there. Apparently is not that enamored with Tim Tebow. But, uh, you know, maybe the owner 
looking at all the empty seats that, that were there last year, the new owner of that team says, hey, we need to get some 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 fannies in the seats, and, and, and Tim Tebow is a legend in the state of Florida. Obviously, Blaine Gabbert struggled last year in his uh, limited play as a, as a rookie quarterback and, and really did not do very well. So I think that, that would be an interesting and intriguing uh, possible trade partner for the Denver Broncos. And as far as what he might warrant, you're hearing kind of maybe fourth round, fifth round pick, hmm. um, which is amazing for, for, for a guy that, you know, really just took the team to the playoffs and played very, very well in, in, in fourth quarter duty anyway. It, it's really going to be kind of a, a case of GMs. It only takes one GM to be interested and to think, hey, I can fix Tim Tebow. I can take him from being a, a curiosity that, 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 you know, is awful for three and a half quarters and great for the, you know, for the half of the fourth quarter into a guy that can be a more consistent quarterback from the first to the fourth quarter. It only takes one trading partner to say, I believe in Tim Tebow to make it happen. Do you think Miami could be a fit? Yeah, there's another team, you know, you're talking about Stephen Ross, the owner who who obviously is trying to get a big name, trying to make a big move, and, you know, no one knows how healthy that David Gerard is going to be. We see, I think we think we kind of have a, a a view of his best days. You know, he obviously was a playoff quarterback for Jacksonville and won some big games, beat the Steelers one year in the playoffs, but... You know, no one seems to know about his his full health situation and his back and how that's going to hold off. And obviously, you know, Tim Tebow was basically honored on the home field of the Denver Broncos earlier, or of the uh, Miami Dolphins earlier this season when the Broncos came to South Florida. Right. So, I do think Miami is also uh, a possible fit for Tim Tebow. You look at that that entire state. I think those are the those are the teams that, that I think would probably at least make a phone call to John Elway. I think John Elway's phone will ring because Tim Tebow, whether he's you know limited, you know wildcat type of package, a veer, you know veer offense package, like you know maybe he's a, a potential. You know you've heard the, the Philadelphia Eagles mentioned as a name just because Mike Vick runs a similar type of style right. that Tim Tebow could easily adapt to. But I, I look south to, to teams like the Jacksonville Jaguars and, and Miami Dolphins as the two two that I think are the, are the biggest potential suitors for Tebow. You know, when I've been listening to you answer these questions, and, and you keep mentioning ownership, and it it makes me think of the Titans, because the Titans were a team that initially weren't really mentioned as a possible destination for Manning, but then their owner... But Adams kind of said, I want to be in this. So they were in it. And he's also a guy who, when they picked Vince Young in the draft, was very, very vocal. I want Vince Young. And do you think that that makes it tough? Do you think that makes Tennessee, I don't know, Jeff Fisher's not there anymore. He he left to go to St. Louis, you know, left, took a year off, went to St. Louis. Do you think that... You know, we see it with Jerry Jones and, and Snyder. Do you think it, it's harder to build a winning team when you have an owner that is involved as Bud Adams seems to just selectively be when, you know, he finds someone out there that he just, you know, seems it's an itch he wants to scratch, so to speak? Yeah, it's a good question. And you look at the, the, the teams that with the kind of vocal owners that, you know, tend to want to stick their finger in the pie and, and, and make some moves and have their voice heard and aren't afraid to be quoted on matters that I'm sure most coaches and GMs wish they'd be quiet about. And, you know, look what the Dallas Cowboys have done or not done 
since you know Jimmy Johnson and, and Bill Parcells uh, left the building, and you look at a, a guy like Bud Adams, who is very loud and vocal, who obviously had a bit of a power struggle with Jeff Fisher, who's no longer there, and a team that was kind of for a while a, a lock since to make the playoffs, if not every year, at least every other year, uh, they've really fallen on hard times. And, and I do think that players in this era, especially veteran players like like, uh, like a Peyton Manning, who you know he said, listen, I, I think you, you saw people close to him say uh, Peyton probably was not interested in kind of going to a circus. And, and I think that him going back to the state uh, where he played and had so much success at, at, at Tennessee, and perhaps that coupled with uh, you know the, the noise coming out of the owner's booth in, in, in Tennessee might have, might have turned him off. But even, even if it wasn't, I, I think Denver and the way that John Elway could put himself in Peyton Manning's shoes, and, and you heard him during his press conference talk about saying, Peyton, take your time. We'll be here. We're interested. Just, just the way he was kind of cool about it. You know, he wasn't over the top and flashy, and maybe that is what Adams was. He said, listen, I'm a quarterback. I know what you're going through and what, and what you know, the things you're having to weigh. I think that really appealed to, to, to Peyton Manning and helped add to his decision to go to Denver. I want you to to take your Damon hat off and put your Commissioner Goodell hat on. Do a little role playing. Pretend you're the commissioner. How would you punish the Saints? I think I would decide to punish them as harshly as he punished the New England Patriots, if not more so. This is a, a commissioner who's talked so much about player safety and that he's really, you know, re-emphasized rules and, and, and you know, raised the amount of fines, threatened suspensions for, for boorish behavior and helmet-to-helmet hits. I mean, what is worse than having guys paying each other to knock out guys and have explicit, you know, car hits and, you know, wheeling guys off of the field? I, I think that Commissioner Goodell and I would, if I was in his shoes, we'll make an example of of the New Orleans Saints, you know, and it's kind of sad because just a few years ago, this was the feel good story, not only of the NFL but of sports. And and you heard all the great things about Sean Payton and Drew Brees playing for the city of New Orleans in the in the, in the wake and aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. This really this puts a damper on that. It really kind of uh, takes away, I think, from what was a wonderful story. When I actually went back and looked at some of that NFC Championship game and. You can see guys are obviously flying into the football, but there seems to be a, you know, you see Brett Favre, you know, writhing in pain on the ground, and I think that Commissioner Goodell uh, will be consistent. He's been a consistent taskmaster when it comes to following the rules of football and the spirit of what he thinks obviously is, is, a, is a physical game, but he doesn't want it to, to uh, devolve into out-and-out out anarchy, or, or anarchy. So I do think that he's going to make an example. I think the fines will be steeper than uh, what the New England Patriots face. I, I think you'll possibly see suspensions for, for Greg Williams and, and, and Sean Payton, and I think you're going to see a heavy amount of fines, possibly in the millions of dollars for the Saints organization. The sportscasters are here with uh, the great Damon Hack, who you can follow on Twitter at SI underscore Damon Hack. He wears two Hats for Sports Illustrated. We've had him wear his football hat here for the first two-thirds of the interview. I want you to switch your hat, put your golf hat on. I know you're down in Orlando getting ready to cover a golf tournament. We're just weeks away from the Masters, which is, to me, the highlight of the golf season. We had a big uh, big thing happen in golf last week. That's the number one player in the world switch. And uh, Luke Donald is the number one player in the world again. And it seems like Tiger Woods, you know, he owned that number one 
uh, player in the world distinction for a long time. And, and since then, it's kind of been bouncing around from player to player to player. Does being number one in the world, does that put extra players on these golfers? Is that why we're seeing it change from golfer to golfer, or is it just a number? You know what, Stephen? I think what we're seeing is the after effects of how dominant Tiger Woods really was when he was the number one player in the world. To hold that ranking for as long as he did, uh, Greg Norman was another player that to have, have the, the the number one ranking for for you know basically years at a time as opposed to weeks at a time as it is now. I think you're seeing guys that are are trying to deal with being number one that maybe weren't expecting to be number one. I mean, Luke Donald, for all of his talent, is not a big hitter off the tee. He's not kind of in that mold of these new age. Dustin Johnson, Bubba Watson guys that have followed Tiger, these big six foot two, six foot three athletic guys. But I think more than anything, it just has to do with parity. These guys are very similar in talent. Tiger Woods at his best was better than all of these guys. And that's no offense to, to these great players like Lee Westwood and Martin Keimer and Luke Donald. Um, the one guy that may be the exception is Rory McIlroy, who has steadily climbed his way to number one and gave it back to, to Luke Donald coming off of Luke's win at the Transitions Championship in Tampa. But I do think that you're seeing a bunch of guys that are kind of all squeezed together at the top because they're all kind of similar in terms of their level of talent. And Rory McIlroy is the one guy that, is, as Tiger, you know, gets older and, you know, and, and really steps aside very soon, or, and Phil Mickelson, you know, falls by the wayside in the next, you know, five years or so. Rory is the one guy that people seem to think can have a sustained run at number one in a similar way that Tiger Woods and Greg Norman did. The, uh, Arno Palmer Invitational is this week. You're down in Orlando covering that, and it's one of the tournaments that you know precedes the Masters. Is before it. What are some storylines that you're looking to follow as we get closer to the Masters? What What is interesting? You What What do you want to see as we get closer and closer to the Masters? You know what? Talking to some of my colleagues, this is probably one of the more intriguing and exciting run-ups to the Masters because of all the volatility at the top of the world golf rankings, but you have people and you have faces behind the rankings. You know, a lot of people want to know, is Tiger Woods going to be healthy? Is Rory McIlroy, can he come back and win the Masters where he shot 80 on the final day um, last year at the Masters for bouncing back and winning the U.S. Open? You have Phil Mickelson, who won earlier this year at Pebble Beach, shooting 64 to Tiger Woods is 75, and then losing in a playoff the following week to to uh, to Billy Haas at Riviera, but Phil's playing very well. Rory McIlroy, you have Jason Day, another young player. You know Adam Scott. There's just so many players that seem to be kind of right there in the mix. Lee Westwood, can he win his first major? Luke Donald reclaiming number one, but can he kind of validate his number one ranking with a major championship? So I think it's just a the uh, the plethora of, of of stories and 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 really intrigue that makes this Masters really really exciting going into it. But to me, the the health of Tiger, Tiger's pursuit of Jack Nicklaus's record, it's been with us for so long. You know, we we kind of want to see the end. You know, want to know how it will end. Will it end with Tiger stuck on fourteen or fifteen or sixteen? He's got to get that fifteenth major. You know, you kind of get that pursuit of Nicholas's record started it up again and the Masters always seems to be whether he's coming off a scandal 
an injury or whatnot, he can play that course well. He finished tied for fourth there, you know, without a warm-up two years ago coming off of a scandal. So a lot of people think that, you know, whether he's a little bit gimpy or not, that's a golf course he can play and possibly win if he can get that putter going. What do you think? Do you think he uh, ultimately breaks that record? You know what? I used to think it was a, a slam dunk. I, I thought he'd get to 20 or 25 majors, and I just don't know. I, I would say, you know, probably not. I, I almost think there's just too much talent out there now. It may not be otherworldly talent. It may not be Tiger Woods' talent, but it doesn't have to be. It can be Y.E. Yang beating him at the PGA. It can be Rory McIlroy picking off a major or two, or Phil Mickelson winning a major at, at the Masters again. You know, maybe it's one of these young players, Rory Ishikawa or, or Jason Day. I just think they're enough good guys, good to great guys, you know, almost like Jack Nicklaus faced in his heyday. You know, there are enough guys that can pick off majors, you know, guys that may win one major in their career or four majors in their career. But I'm starting to think that Tiger, at 36 years old, um, is running out of time. I really think the, the scandal, the injuries, he's, he's kind of given away a lot of his best years, I think. Obviously, guys can win majors in their 40s. Vijay Singh has done it. Um, Phil Mickelson won recently at the Masters, but I'm wondering if Tiger's body will be the biggest thing, other than the other players, that keeps him from getting that number of 19 majors. I just wonder if his body, if his knee, if his Achilles can hold up for the rigors of a chase that will probably take another 5 to 10 years to get done. I'm not sure if his body uh, can hold up to that test. You know, I think of Kurt Schilling and had taken the ball in New York with the bloody sock and, and you know maybe he emptied his tank that day to get that championship in Boston and then I think of Tiger Woods limping around the course at the U.S. Open a few years ago do you think maybe Tiger Woods emptied his tank to win that that major that 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 weekend that's a really interesting question and I think it's a fair one to, to, to ask because he hasn't won a major since then and, and maybe that's what will be his his highest moment and maybe his finishing moment. You know, maybe that does empty his tank. Maybe what he did was so otherworldly, hobbling around on one leg, you know, making eagles, chipping in for, for birdie, rolling in that birdie putt to get into the playoff on the 72nd hole. Just the, the incredible celebration. The, the You know, the, you remember the, the incredible look on his face, just the, the elation and, and, and what it must have taken out of him to go out the next day, not even 100%, and, and win that, that championship, win that major. There, there could be something to that because his body hasn't been the same. He's dealing with multiple injuries now, knee, Achilles. And, and one of the things I want to ask him, and I'm hoping to ask him either during this tournament or during the Masters, is what is his plan into his 40s? Does he, does he see a way through these injuries? Does he see a Vijay Singh type of, you know, renaissance in his 40s, a Steve Stricker, a Kenny Perry? Can he be a guy that wins 10 to 15 tournaments in his 40s? Because it's hard to see him playing through these injuries at the highest level that he needs to. It's hard to imagine having, you know, another U.S. Open at Torrey Pines. You, you know, most people never have that moment. 
you know, Ben Hogan had a moment, Ken Venturi had a moment, and maybe Tiger Woods had his moment, but it's hard to think that he could suddenly, you know, come back and keep having those kinds of moments when the body begins to age and slowly breaks down. All right, it's the Sportscasters uh, finishing up with uh, Damon Hack. You can follow him on Twitter at SI underscore Damon Hack. We really appreciate the time today, Damon. Anything uh, we can look for that's going to be coming in the future? Yes, I'm working on a Mark Wilson feature for our Masters preview uh, in our SI Golf Masters preview standalone. Um, also have a game story coming out from uh, the Arnold Palmer Invitational kind of looking at Tiger and all these guys that we talked about, you know, kind of what their uh, motivation is, what they're playing for, and what seems to be a very uh, exciting and, and competitive uh, world of golf right now. Thank you so much, Damon. We really appreciate the time. Thank you so much, Stephen. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Take care, man. All right, a very special thank you to Damon Hack. Honestly, you know we love Lee Jenkins. You know we love John Wertheim. I think we love Damon just as much. He really is one of the most genuine, kind, nice men that we deal with in this business. Yeah, when he got off the plane an hour ago? Yeah, he flies out. He spent his whole day traveling today, arrived 2.45 p.m. in Orlando. 4 o'clock, he does a half-an-hour interview with us. Like, it's the most important thing he's going to do all day. Right. All right, so here's the deal today with the Sportscasters 10. The sport, the hockey news had a, in their March 19th issue, uh, they polled five players from each NFL, NHL team asking who they thought were the top five players in the league today. They couldn't vote for teammates, and then afterwards, uh, THN tabulated the votes and came up with a ranking of the top 50 players in the NHL. Now, again, it's interesting how TSN did this because they kind of took the list and any debate for it away from them. It's not their list. It's the players' list, (laughs) and they're presenting it. What's odd about that is right off the bat, I'm almost surprised that 50 players even made the list. But I guess when you're playing against these guys, maybe it's easier to say, like, this guy is one of the five best i don't care what his stats or what other people say so first thing i want to do is i want to give you the players top 10 right okay number 10 is Zdeno chara number nine is daniel sedin number eight is alex ovechkin number seven is nicholas lidstrom six is evgeny malkin five is jonathan taves four steven stamkos three is claude Giroux. Two is Pavel Datsuk. Number one is Sidney Crosby. Okay. Now, for the list today that Don and I have done, we kind of focused on something that I don't think the players did, and that was the now aspect of this. Right. Because as I read the description as it's listed on the Hockey News, they said that they polled five players from each team for who they thought were the top five players in the league Today, I think the today part, when you look at this list, was maybe overlooked by the players a little bit. I think a lot of this is reputation. You have a guy like 
John Tavares. He's not on this list at all. Then you have a guy like Yarmer Yager, who's number 18 on the list. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Okay, so what Don and I have done is put our list separately. We want to focus on the today part of it, who we think are the top 10 players in the league as games are played today on March 20th, 2012. Don, give me your number 10. All right, my number 10 is a homer pick, but I had to make sure to get one in there. And it's actually shared by three players. Uh, again, we keep mentioning today. I took that as like right this second, like as of the last game played. And I actually am going to share it with three Sabres. If I had to give it to one, it would probably be Tyler Ennis. Uh, he's on a five-game. I don't know if he's actually got points in all five games. But in his last five games, he's got nine points along with a line of Marcus Foligno, who just got called up, who's a point-of-game player right now. He has seven points in f- in the last five games with five goals and drew stafford has all of a sudden woken up he has nine points in his last five games so clearly a homer pick i don't actually think any of these guys are the 10 or top 10 players in the league but for this list right this second they might be the hottest line in the league so they're going to share the 10 spot one thing i i wanted to mention which i didn't this the hockey news included goalies we left goalies off right to me it's so hard to compare the value of a goalie with the value of a center defenseman. Sure. So we just left goalies off for the purposes of our list. My number 10 is Shea Weber. Plays for the Nashville Predators. Arguably one of the hottest teams in the league. He's obvious, arguably the best player on their team. And I think he's going to be a very big part of whether or not Nashville is going to be a one-and-done team. Or a team that can win a couple rounds in the playoffs this year. My number nine is Sidney Crosby. Again, this is a list for right this second. Um, I heard it described great last night on a hockey broadcast. He said he's the best right this right now. He's the best third line center in the league. And uh, obviously they were joking, but right now he's number nine. My number nine is Sedano Chara. Won the Norris Trophy last year. Was on the Stanley Cup winning team, and he scored a goal last night against the Leafs. Doing what he does. Blasting a shot from the point. <laughs> Scott, arguably, or well, not even arguably, he has the hardest shot in the league. He's proved it time and time again at the All-Star game. And uh, Big Z is my number nine. My number eight is Henrik Sedin. And uh, let me go back to the list you were talking about on THN. Henrik was number 11. His brother Daniel was nine. Right. Henrik was 11. It's pretty impressive that both of those guys are that close. I honestly have a hard time remembering which is the guy that sets him up, which is the guy that scores him. Henrik is the setup guy. He's the guy that won the Art Ross with the most points in the heart in 2009. And I didn't have any West players. Damn it, <laughs> My the- East Coast bias is really showing. And uh, give me the guy that can score around 30 and set up 40 for his brother. So I'll take, I'll take Henrik. I have Henrik at number eight as well, and it, it pisses me off because i just seen their birthday. They were born September 26, 1980, <laughs> 25 days after me. <laughs> Damn it. Uh, my number seven, uh, I had a hard time in this part because certain players, it was easy to put them like Crosby, like I said. He'd obviously be way higher in the list if he was fully healthy. I have guys that are a little bit hotter up ahead of him. These two guys, my next two picks are, just guys that have had solid years or solid players this year, not necessarily streaking right now, though. But number seven is Jason Spezza. He's a guy on a team that I think is 
borderline shocking that they're yes. doing as well as they are. They're, they could easily be two or just easily right. be seven. <laughs> yeah, they could win the division or, uh, right, they could make it in with the rest of the mess. But Jason Spezza having a career, a real nice year, over a point a game. Uh, He's a, a guy who that, can shoot the puck, too. Yeah, and he can pass it and just he as well. He's real well, creative, yeah. yeah. Yeah, actually, Spezzo was one of the guys when I got down to 10. I had about four guys left in a pack and wasn't sure. And I actually did what you did. I threw in just to get another West guy and was actually the reason I picked Weber. Uh, my number seven is Daniel Sedin. Okay. Uh, I didn't think it was fair to put Henrik in and not put Daniel. Sure. Again, Daniel was a little bit higher on the hockey news list, so I kind of used that as my tiebreaker. And uh, I have Daniel at seven. Again, with the with the Sabres I put there, Easily could have had one of the Sedins in that 10 spot instead. Uh, my number six is Ilya Kovalchuk. Uh, he had a nightmare of a start in New Jersey. He did. But since then, they're a team that is pretty much rooted in the playoffs at this point. They're going to make another run for with uh, Marty Berdur. And a uh, big reason why they're doing it is because of Kovalchuk's year. My f- number six is my first Russian on the list, and there's going to be a couple more. Pavel Datsuk, probably if we would have done this a month ago, he would have been in my top three or so. Yeah. But he just returned from a knee injury. It doesn't seem to be bothering them him, though. He scored a goal the other night, which wowed me. And that's what the thing about Pavel Datsuk. Sure, yeah. He wows you. You know, I've always said he's kind of the Barry Sanders of hockey, and he's he's incredible. If you're not a big hockey person, go look at – Pavel Datsuk videos online, shootout, breakaway type videos. It's D-A-T-S-Y-U-K. If you're not a hockey fan, watch Pavel Datsuk. He'll wow you. He'll dazzle you. He will deke a goalie so bad that he shoots into an empty net. It's it's incredible the stuff this guy can do. My number five is the only defenseman I have on my list. I, that's probably me being too narrow-minded a little bit about it, but it's Eric Carlson. Uh, Great year. This guy's been incredible. Yep. Young kid. He's over a point a game. Again, maybe even more so than Spezza, the reason that Ottawa is having the year they're having. This kid is just incredible. Uh, he is the number one scoring defenseman in the league. The guy behind him, Brian Campbell, also having a real nice year. 25 points behind Carlson right now. Carlson's top 10 in scoring from the D, D-man. That's awesome. He might out Nick Lidstrom, Nick Lidstrom this year and take his trophy. Yeah, and he's also a fellow Swede. Yep. Like Lidstrom, a 1990 birth year, so 10 years Jeez. younger than the Sedins. All right, my next one up is Claude Giroux at number five. I thought he was a little high on the players list, but you know what? He's a great player, and he's battled a couple injuries this year, but just the other night in the shootout, he did what he called the Datsuk, <laughs> and it was gorgeous. And he is a stud. He scores. He assists. He's the heart and soul of that Flyers team. And I have number five. My number four is Alex Ovechkin, a guy that if we were doing this right now list about a month ago, you could say the opposite about where he might not have even been in the top ten list. He all of a sudden looks interested in playing hockey, and he's just dominant again. Uh, Even in a kind of a bad year, he's got, I think, 32 goals, so he's going to end up with around 40. And... He's the main reason that Washington has been able to keep the Sabres off their tail so far and just willing them to win. He's the only one there that seems to score with any consistency, and he's he's back to caring about hockey and 
he's dominant when he wants to. Yeah, I struggled with him. I, I didn't know what to do with him. Yeah. Uh, my number four is Ilya Kovalchuk. He's having an unbelievable season for the Devils. I kind of think he should be one of the three players that end up being nominated for the Hart Trophy. I think the season's yeah. been that good. Sure. And uh, he's number four. My number three is Claude Giroux. Uh, you talked about him already. I saw him mostly against the Sabres in their series last year, and he was great. Uh, and he's better this year. It, right. And, again, the, I talked about it last week. The Flyers are an odd team because they didn't really do anything at the deadline. They didn't address their goalie issues. But they've just quietly put together another nice, solid season, and he's one of the players that maybe isn't getting – even at number three or whatever he was on the players list, maybe isn't as much respect as he deserves this year. And get this. He signed through I saw that, the 2013-14 yeah. season at a $3.75 million cap hit. Yeah, so Philly uh, Philly fans, if you want to win, now is your time because that guy is going to need a little bit of a raise. He's going to be going up to an $8 million cap hit Sure, not too long from now. My number three is Sidney Crosby. I know you had him down the list a little bit, but even right now, I think this guy... I mean, how many assists does he have since he's been back? He already has like five or six. Yeah, He's only played a couple of games. And that third line, best third line center in the league thing, that's going to last for another day or two. Right, right. That, and that's it. He's going to be the best number one center in the league again. And look it, I'm a sick guy. I really am. I know that he, people go either way with him. There's a lot of haters out there. There's a lot of guys who, who just admire him. And I'm an admirer, and uh, he's my number three. Yeah, I think a lot of it was just his early uh – what people saw as whining, maybe golden boy type stuff. Right, but that was when he was an 18-year-old kid, and i got to give him a pass on that. Right. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what they do with uh, him and Malkin. But we'll, I'll get back to that. My number two is Steven Stamkos. He's a guy that he, Tampa Bay doesn't get on TV a lot. It's a Florida team. Uh, they're not very good this year. In fact, they might be the only team that's not in the playoffs that I have a player, well, the Sabres, on my list. And he's a strange player in that he doesn't wow you necessarily the way Crosby does or Malkin or any of these players that are just going to – I mean, he's great. He goes, he, But he just doesn't seem to be of the similar mold as these other – He isn't flashy, players. I guess. Right. Yeah. But he just scores goals. He's got – And he scores them from anywhere. Right. He's got 50 goals right now, which I Only believe player. is like nine more than the next closest player. And of those 50, 10 are game winners, so – that's a ton of game-winning goals. He makes a difference out there, and people haven't been able to shut him down at all this year. You know, maybe for people who are listening to this that are more football guys, he's the number one pick in every fantasy hockey league next year, right? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Just, or, right. or, I mean, it'd be close with Malkin because Malkin gets more assists, but if they can put some talent with Stamkos, because he's not even playing with guys like... He plays the St. Louis usually. I don't think he was last night. Not maybe. last night? No. Uh, maybe it's injuries and... Yeah, because Cavie like is not there too. right now, yeah. so who knows what they're doing. Yeah, he's my number two as well, Stamkos. Uh, Could have been one. Sure. But there's, I think, one guy having a better season, and I think we both have him at number one. Right, and that's why I said we get back to Malkin, Crosby thing. Evgeny Malkin has been – everyone knows how good he is. People have talked about in the past that maybe he's the best center on his team. I don't necessarily agree with that, but Crosby's been down all year, and that team has been remarkable still, and it's been all on his shoulders. He earned James Neal a nice fat payday, and he's just been phenomenal. The interesting thing I was started to bring up earlier is you've got to get him and Crosby equal ice time 
So does this become a two-line team? I mean, how do you – do they even have a fourth line? Where are they going to find minutes for the fourth line? Yeah, and between Stahl and Neal and Crosby and Latang and Fleury, this is a team of stars, yep. and he is the star of the stars, and he has carried the team. There was a point in the season where I predicted on this show – that the Penguins wouldn't make the playoffs at all. I think I said the same thing and because the they would reason, just out. The reason they are is because this guy has been as good as he is. He held this team together. He, scored, he scores huge goals. He scores goals in the last minute. He scores goals in overtime. And he's the reason that this team held it together, kept winning games. And now that Latang is there again and Stahl is there again and Crosby is there again, they are the scariest team in the entire sure. league. And, they, this, and this is coming a season after Malkin suffered a pretty nasty injury to his knee. So apparently he's healthy, and again, it's a center league, and these guys are absolutely scary at center. Can you imagine if that team – now, granted, they got their cup. You you can't take that away from them. They would argue probably that – I mean, Flurry was their goalie when they got the cup. He made a huge save to win the cup. Right. On Lidstrom, I believe. Can you imagine if they didn't pick Flurry? Nobody missed in that draft. Flurry is the closest thing. I mean, there was like literally two misses. Stahl was the second pick. So they would have Eric Eric Stahl, right? Instead of Flurry, so that that would be remarkable, right? Or they could have Thomas Vanek, or they could have who was the best defenseman drafted in that draft? Maybe Fanuf. Yeah. but there's a there's a bunch bunch of names. My my point there is if they had it to do again, they would never say it, but I don't think they would take Fleury again. Not Probably with all not. those other names out there, but imagine a guy like Vanek. They've always said Vanek's never had a natural center. Oh, imagine him on a wing with, with Crosby, Crosby or Malkin, that'd be incredible. Thank God they took a goalie. <laughs> Couple things about our list as compared to the players. One, Jonathan Taves is the only uh, and Nicholas Lidstrom are the only players in their top 10 that w- weren't in ours. I think the thing with Taves, he would easily have been in the 10. Not a, a, not lot, a lot of big numbers this year for him. He might have been in the 10 a lot of other points in the season, but right now he's injured. He's not playing well, right too, now. Right. So that's why I didn't include him on my list. Lidstrom, I think, is clearly a guy who has slowed down this year a bit and maybe made the players top 10. He's still on one of the the plus-minus leaders in the league. I mean, that guy's incredible. He's still great, believe yeah. me. He could have easily been in my list. Um, a couple of things about my list. I have one, two, three, four Canadians, one Czech, uh, two Swedes, and three Russians. No Americans. Yeah, I don't think I have any American. Well, Stafford, but again, that's a ultimate right now, right now, <laughs> right, right this second. You were very, very uh, into the right now thing with Epic. Yeah. All right, fun list. Uh, this is one we can definitely update from time to time to see how uh, things change, the ebb and flow of the league. Don, was there a guy that you didn't include that you really had a tough time not including? Chara. Chara. But again, that came down. I think I had a little more tunnel vision with the right this second type of thing, and his team's been pretty much garbage lately. They're really trying to give away the Northeast to Ottawa. Now, granted, Toronto is the ultimate fix for whatever ails you. They right. Blasted them eight to nothing last night. But uh, Boston's that's an odd team. They seem like a team that if people would uh, like stereotypically say like a team built for the playoffs, 
that's Boston. They have great goaltending, typically, and a nasty team, and they've got the team toughness and all that that jazz, but they can't beat anybody lately except for Toronto. We both had Kovalchuk on our list. The players had him at 27. That's got to be a Ridiculous. Dis- they, they, that's got to be a dislike. Jordan, right? jo- or Joe Thornton was ahead of him. Yeah, and at this point, that that's not right. Yeah, so... All right, that was fun. Let's take a break right now, and we're going to come right back with Neil Best from Newsday. Our next guest is from New York City, New York, and is a graduate of Cornell University. Spent two years covering college hockey in Alaska before being hired by Newsday in 1985. Since then, he has worn several hats for the newspaper, including covering St. John's and Big East basketball, spending five years on the New York Giants beat, and now working as a reporter, columnist, and blogger. He often focuses on off-field topics such as sports media and business. His popular Sports Watch column debuted in September of 2005. Last weekend, he traveled to the banks of the Three Rivers to cover the NCAA basketball tournament. He is making his third appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented Neil Best. How are you doing today, Mr. Best? Good, good. Thank you for having me. I have to tell you about my uh, my February experience at Cornell University. Um, I went, uh, first of all, geez, that place is just no good way to get there. You know, I left from Buffalo we're on the thruway, it seems like, for 15 minutes. to get off the thruway, and then it's just all this country road driving, you know? And it was the <coughs> nicest winter we ever had in Buffalo, but this was the snowiest day of the winter. So we're driving to Cornell. It's freezing there, and couldn't find the rink, couldn't find a place to park. Finally, we get all that. We walk in, and that fight song we played, I think I heard it seven times. It was just an absolute beating. My poor brother's team. Uh, got rolled by uh, by Cornell, who uh, eventually suffered the same fate my brother's team had, and that was they got beat by Harvard in the playoffs and uh, right. and uh, didn't make the tournament. But what a great place to watch a hockey game, huh? Oh yeah, it's it's. Uh, <laughs> I took my daughter to visit in mid February, and unfortunately we couldn't time it for a hockey game, so I just um, took her into line to just look at it. But yeah, I mean, I've I've seen a. a fair amount of different college hockey arenas but certainly nothing beats lineup but as far as getting there yeah we used to call it centrally isolated because it's sort of similar distances from you know new york philly buffalo uh you know a little bit longer to boston but no it's not near anything yeah i mean it's near syracuse if that counts but (laughs) yeah it was uh it was a great place and like watching the game is so cool because you're really right on top of it, and on top of that, everyone in the stands is on top of each other. There's not right. a real great gap between the bleachers, and everyone's packed in there real tight. And uh, I just thought it was great. The students were great. The band was great. The banners are impressive. And they won the Ivy League championship that night, so I got to see the trophy presented. And it was just a really, really great night. So I know why you must have loved it so much to have been a student there. And, uh, yeah, and it was and, a great uh, treat. Yeah, and about four years ago, they did a big renovation. But the great thing they did was they, they sort of added, you know, did sort of an addition with all new offices and locker rooms and that kind of stuff, while maintaining, you know, the 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 character, of the arena itself. So, 
um, it's definitely, you know, my, my wife went to Duke, and it's, you know, obviously, it's, in a lot of ways, it's the hockey equivalent to Cameron Indoor, so it's sort of the same thing at Duke, where you have this very old basketball arena that obviously has a unique uh, characteristic, so it's sort of the hockey version of, of, of Duke's uh, basketball arena. Luckily, I didn't have to wait outside in a tent to get a ticket, though. Yeah, I well, my my freshman year we had to wait outside for our season tickets to Cornell Hockey. And then they realized that was dangerous, even in November in Ithaca. So they they moved the hockey line indoors, and I think it still is. But um, I did spend my freshman year. I I was outdoors, not even in a tent, just kind of sitting out on <laughs> outside in Ithaca. So I guess they realized that was a little dangerous. Yeah, well, a little aside there. Beautiful place. If you ever get a chance to watch college hockey game. Go to Cornell. It was absolutely uh, something I'll never forget. Anyway, you had the chance to travel to another beautiful but new arena uh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Luckily, you didn't have to travel there and go watch basketball in the igloo. Because uh, as maybe classic as that place might be, I'm glad they tore it down. So it was a disaster. But it started off fast and a little bit crazy. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that first Syracuse Asheville game and about the kind of unique I think thing that you you tried to convey on Twitter about how seemingly the fans kind of turned against Syracuse and the officials and the controversial calls of that game yeah well first of all the igloo the the, the strangest site there is the igloo is only about 75 percent down it's like it almost looks like a like an amphitheater right now because it's about a quarter like a quarter sliver of it is still standing which is kind of bizarre uh, but anyway, the um, yeah, you know, I saw six games there, and really the only one that was really interesting was that Syracuse-Asheville game. And, uh, you know, obviously I guess you'd expect, first of all, you expect a Pittsburgh crowd to root against Syracuse, and second of all, obviously people tend to root for the underdogs regardless. But, um, yeah, between between the the whole Syracuse, what's going on, going on with Syracuse, and also the officials' calls in there, I've never seen that much booing on a neutral court before, and just kind of a bad vibe about the whole game, and then it extended to after the game, where you know, even though the Asheville players and coaches tried to resist complaining about the refs, they, you know, the coach said, "Well, you know, Syracuse is better than us in general, but tonight we were the better team." And then Beheim didn't like that. He said, "Well, no, we were the better team. That's why they make scoreboards." So <laughs> it was some pretty good stuff. I mean, uh, you know, by the standards of NCAA games, it was a little bit of trash talking. So that was good. You know, it's been a really weird. We've kind of followed it a little bit. The the, the season that Syracuse has had, a great season on the court, maybe one of the best they've ever had, and then just a disastrous one off the court. It started with the Bernie Fine incident and then moved on to kind of what people are starting to perceive as maybe a lack of institutional control overall and the drug testing and then, you know, Fab Mello being uh, ruled ineligible for for the, the tournament at the last minute. Being around the team, Syracuse itself, do you feel like that they've put in that the the offside off the court stuff behind them and are able to? I mean, they look very impressive in the second half against Kansas State. Finally, but do you think that they they're feeling the effects of this off the court stuff, or do you think that they're focused enough? to win this weekend in the NCAA tournament. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, they're in the Sweet 16. They're, they're not, you know, I don't, I don't know. You know, young players tend to be able to forget about this stuff and just play and not worry about it. And, um, you know, the most tangible problem is just the reality that Fab Mello is not there. And, 
and even though Christmas played pretty well in the second round, well, they call it the third round now, in the Syracuse's second game, um, you know, clearly there were times where things were happening underneath the basket that wouldn't have if Melo was there. So that's the biggest problem to me. It's not psychological. You know, one of the nice things about Beheim, you know, I know not everybody likes him, and there are things that I don't like about him. However, um, you know, one, one thing I like about him is unlike most college basketball coaches, he's not like a – he doesn't get caught up in all the kind of student-athlete, um, uh, idealistic mumbo-jumbo. He's an extremely pragmatic guy who, um, you know, he, he doesn't he doesn't treat them or talk about them like kids. He, he talks about them like they are, which is young adults. And he's he doesn't so when things go wrong, it doesn't make it okay. But I find him to be let's put it this way: I find him less hypocritical than most college coaches because he doesn't go in for the touchy-feely kind of stuff about college sports. He's very sort of a, a, a realist. So, you know, maybe that enables him to get through this kind of stuff more easily than, than it would for a, a college coach who's, you know, a little more more idealistic than he is. Let's talk about the the site itself and the atmosphere a little bit. You know, the tournament comes here to Buffalo every, you know, periodically, and it seems like it does really well here. Tickets are usually in great demand, especially the last time they were here because Duke was here, and that was crazy. Um, but I watch on TV, and some of the places they go just seem – seems like it's the NIT. There's just nobody yeah. in the crowd. How was, how was Pittsburgh as a venue? Did, Pittsburgh. Well, first of all, I've been to a couple of the, the Buffalo ones. I think, I'm pretty sure, was it 99 and 04 did Buffalo host? Yeah, I'm that sounds there right. In 07 were the three. Yeah, I, I was yeah. not there in 07. I was there in 99 and 04. But in any, in any case, um, you know, Pittsburgh was actually good. Um, you know, you always, obviously, you have fans of these games that are not fans that are going and their team's not playing, so they show up late or they leave early. That always is going to happen. However, Pittsburgh, the neutral areas were pretty full for the most part, and it was pretty good atmosphere. Yeah, the some of the, I mean, Greensboro, once North Carolina was done playing the other night, it was embarrassing how few people were there for the second game there. And, you know, that that's kind of rough. I mean, that, obviously that's partly a function of having a, essentially a home team for one of the games and everybody left, but... I don't know. I've always found it kind of weird that if you're uh, enough of a sports fan, enough of a college basketball fan to want to spend the money and actually buy these tickets, why you wouldn't just kind of check out the other game, particularly in situations where your team is going to be playing the winner of the other game. So, but yeah, it's, it's, um, that's one of the weird things about the NCAA is as big as an event it is, it is nationally on television and partly because of the brackets and all. Once you get to these local sites, sometimes it's just the atmosphere in the arena is terrible because, you know, it's a neutral crowd and nobody cares. We know those Thursday and Fridays, the first day of the tournament, those are very long days with the four games, the breaks in between. You were a Thursday-Saturday site. Did you get a chance on Friday and Sunday to watch some of uh, the coverage of the tournament? Yeah, I was. Um, I went out with... Uh, uh, I went out with Friday night. I was out with Tim Layden from Sports Illustrated at a Pittsburgh uh, bar slash restaurant. It was kind of cool because we saw, you know, three of the well, the Ohio game and the Duke game were on at the same time, and uh, I forget what the third game was. But you know, so we got to kind of experience it like normal people in a in a bar with people kind of following multiple games at once. And then back in my hotel room, I got to actually hear you know some of the announcers in the other games. But um, when you do it, when you do a uh, a Thursday, when you do a Friday-Sunday regional, it's actually easier because you can watch the games on Thursday. Uh, when you do a Thursday-Saturday, you're kind of always working, so you don't 
see that much of what else is going on. What do you think about CBS's decision in general to kind of put the tournament in the hands of the viewer? You know, we used to always be able to talk about what a lousy job they did switching the games. And they just bailed out of that and said, you know what, we're just going to put this thing, every game's on, it's out there for you. Sure, it's true TV, and maybe some people love to joke about, even Charles Barkley during the coverage seemed to love to pick on true TV a little bit. But what do you think about the decision in general to kind of put the tournament in the hands of the viewer as opposed to the producers in, in New York? Well, I mean, it's it's very hard to argue with it because now nobody can, like you said, nobody can complain. Every you can see every minute of every game. Now, obviously, there are some downsides to it. For you know, there, it takes some effort on the viewer's part to bounce around and do the, as you said, do the work yourself. Also, as I discovered during you know being on the road or let's say in a hotel, um, not so much a hotel room, but let's say you're at a restaurant or you're just some public area. Obviously, only one game, if there's one TV, well, only one game could be on at a time because it's not like the old days where they'd bounce around. So, I mean, there are some negatives, but it's a huge net positive that you just don't have to worry about it anymore. Whatever you want to see, you see it whenever you want to see it. So, it's, it's, to me, it's been a huge fan-friendly development these last couple of years. What, what prompted them to change Sunday around? It seems like every year I can remember, Sunday used to be... The last game of the day, you know, kind of led into 60 minutes. You know, today, 60 minutes, or this year, 60 minutes played, and there was like four games on after, and I'm watching basketball on Sunday till midnight. Well, the change was that the games aren't on CBS anymore, therefore they had the ability to, to um, you know, go against 60 minutes, which, as you said, in the past it was always over. I mean, I don't, I'm still kind of getting used to the new patterns these last couple of years after years and years of being used to, like you said, to the way it works. You know, one thing I don't like, which they now do on Saturday and Sunday, is they have the two, in the afternoon, there's just the two national games, just one game on at a time, basically, and then the overlapping starts happening in the evening. I'm not sure why they can't spread out the games a little more and not have both afternoon games be the only game on, so that's a little annoying, but, um, but you know, again, it's it still lets you do, you know, lets you want it. Watch it the way you want to watch it. It's just that now that includes Sunday night, whereas, like you said, in the past it didn't. Now, in the regional final, CBS will show that game this Sunday in late afternoon like they always did and then go into 60 minutes. So I assume I'll be covering Kentucky, Baylor, presumably, at 5 o'clock or so on Sunday in Atlanta. Is that where you're headed this weekend, Atlanta? Yeah, yeah. yeah they're sending me to Atlanta next. So, you know, without Duke and that, it loses a little bit of juice, but... For us, actually, Xavier is a good local story because two Holloway's a Long Island guys, so I'll be writing about him, I'm sure. Yeah, Xavier, it's amazing the job that they do from the A10, you know, which is a great, it's a good basketball conference, but it seems like they always find their way into at least the, the Sweet 16. It's it's really incredible what they what they have done in, in Cincinnati there with that program. Yeah, that seems for real. Like they certainly could upset Baylor, which, uh, you know, I mean, Baylor's kind of a, Baylor is an interesting story in itself, but it's a hard self, you know, in the Northeast to write about Baylor. People's eyes tend to glaze over. So I have a feeling if Baylor and Kentucky are playing for the regional championship, I'll be writing more about Kentucky than Baylor, but Baylor is a good story too. You know, while we were all, you know, kind of buried in December football, Kentucky and Indiana played one of the best college basketball games, if not the best college basketball game of the season. And, you know, Kentucky's going to get a chance to avenge that loss. You know, Indiana's going to have a chance to try to take down the number one seed in the tournament. 
what are your what are your thoughts on on, on that game? It, it seems like you got maybe the the best first game there. Yeah, well, that's well, that's the second game of the night, which uh, I believe, which is um, well. First of all, it's yes, it's an interesting matchup. I mean, it'll take a lot for Indiana to to beat them, but just <clears throat> I might as well throw in some sports writer whining here since we we talk about that in addition to the basketball. But you know, when I covered college basketball a lot in the nineties. You know, of the six rounds, my least favorite was always the regional semifinals because the problem is you got two very interesting games, both of which are played back to back in prime time. So, for example, on Thursday, on Friday night, I'm going to be, you know, I'll, I'll cover the Baylor Xavier game and write about that. Then I will have to write about the Kentucky Indiana game for our late edition, since it's too late for the early edition, having basically not seen the game. Which is extremely frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> when you're writing a story about a game that everybody reading your story actually watched and you didn't really watch. So I hate the regional semifinals, but I mean, not that I'm not happy to be there. I'm not complaining about, you know, the fact that my job allows me to see these games up close. That's great. It's just that logistically, the regional semifinals are really a pain in the neck. <laughs> so every time I hear about that Kentucky Indiana game, I think, wow, yeah, I'm looking forward to that game, except I'm not really going to be watching it. <laughs> Did you, is this, it seems like you've been traveling quite a bit this year. You know, you went to Super Bowl, went to some of the, you know, you followed the Giants pretty closely in their run there. Um, And I know that, you know, we we mentioned you were on the Giants beat and, you know, St. John's and the Big East and all that. But it seems like, you know, you've been focusing the last few years on the TV and the business and the media side of things. Is this a change this year or is it just that I'm following you more closely than I noticed that you're moving all around this year quite a bit? Well, well, first of all, I'm flattered that you even are paying enough attention to know of my comings and goings, so that's good. <laughs> but, you're, but, but, you, but you're actually right. It has changed. In the first, I'd say my first four years on the media beat, literally the only overnight trip I took in four years for work was when I went to the Giants, uh, you know, the 08 Super Bowl, so I was gone for that week. But uh, mostly I just was home or in Manhattan or whatever. Um, but, yeah, in the last, starting with the two football seasons ago, they started having me do a lot of football and, um, you know, and now helping out with the NCAA tournament. I mean, partly it's a function of our staff isn't as large as it used to be. And, you know, partly I'm, you know, I have an interest in, I've done this stuff before and, and it's nice to get out of the house and, like, actually cover sports events sometimes. So, yeah, I'd say my job has gone from being, like, 95% media business to more, like, you know, 67% and the rest of it being an actual, like, going to games kind of sports writer. So it's good. It's, it's a, it mixes it up and it keeps it fresh and it's, I get to see my old friends and I saw a lot of, several people in Pittsburgh I hadn't seen since the early 90s when I was on the St. John's. Good. You know, I want to throw in a couple of, uh, of uh, small uh, sports issues and, and sports media issues. And one that was crazy yesterday was this report that Bobby Knight won't say the name Kentucky on ESPN for because of, you know, does that, now that this is out there, can, can ESPN keep throwing Bobby Knight into these telecasts oh. when he won't mention Kentucky? It's really weird. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, ESPN isn't commenting on this matter, but the only conclusion I can draw is that they have decided that this guy's, um, you know, star power slash expertise is worth it to them to have something embarrassing, kind of an embarrassing situation like this where they can't, I don't know if they're going to try to quietly get him to change or whether they're afraid of him or well, everybody's afraid of this guy. But, 
yeah, it's embarrassing. I mean, to have a, a, a network analyst, you know, play games like that. But obviously, ESPN has decided that it's worth it to them to to have this guy with with the understanding that he's got these quirks, these Bobby Knight quirks about him that presumably he's not inclined to change. So, I mean, it's like in a lot of in a lot of worlds, not every some people can get away with things that other people can't get away with. Do you giggle at the NHL when they do things like? You know, their biggest star returns to action. So obviously they need to pick up the game, and their number one partner does that. The NBC Sports Network picks up the game. But instead of broadcasting it themselves, they basically simulcast the local Pittsburgh broadcast, which I don't know if you've seen it as the most Homer of Homer broadcast I've ever seen. And we have Rick Jenneret in Buffalo, who is nothing short of a Homer, believe me. But does that... Does that make the NHL, you know, people think the NHL is a garage league already. Does that feed into that reputation when their biggest well, star is playing one of his biggest games ever and they just simulcast the game? Well, I mean, it's, I mean, it's not ideal, but, you know, it's, if, if, you're, if you're changing things on the fly, sometimes financially and logistically, that's just the easiest way to do it. I mean, it, it does happen on, you know, MLB Network runs local, you know, telecasts and things too, and... I mean, yeah, in a perfect world, you wouldn't do it. But I mean, it's just—it is the easiest, cheapest way to do it. And um, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I—I I, I get more. I'm a hockey guy too. Same here. I get—I get more worked up about that if it was like in the playoffs or something. I mean, something like this. I guess my attitude is, it's nice just to have, just to make sure it's on. And then the the, the other stuff is sort of secondary issues, even though you make a fair point, but. The most important thing is just getting it on, which is so. If they do, that's good. Yeah, I mean, there's the the you know when I think about the NBC Sports Network, there's great stuff. Like in that seven day stretch, they showed ten hockey games, you know, which is incredible, especially at this time right. of the year to have that kind of support. But then again, there's the 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 darker side to it. You know, they, NBC Sports Network didn't air a second of you know coverage of the trade deadline, and then the NHL Network, which did cover it simply just gave us TSN's coverage. You know, so we debated this last week on the show a little bit. You know, the NHL, if they want to grow in the United States, do you think that they need to have United States coverage of their biggest events? Because that's not the only day that the NHL Network just gives us what Canada's doing. They do it on free agent uh, day. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, ideally what you're talking about is true. However, you know, this whole this sort of um, coincidental reality that, um, you know, Comcast now owns NBC and what used to be Versus, which, of course, enabled everything to be under one umbrella in U.S. TV coverage, it was, that was a huge break because now the whole NBC world is working together to get games on, have every game in the playoffs on. I, I mean, it, the whole situation of hockey on U.S. TV has has really taken a positive turn in the last year or so, and you know maybe it'll lead to more uh, along the lines of what you're talking about. But I do think the fact that the NHL now has the same company in charge of its broadcast and cable rights in the U.S. is is a huge good thing, and I think we're going to start seeing the fruits of that in the playoffs this year. Yeah, and I, I don't know about you, but I just thought the fact that you mentioned the NBC connection now and. NBC during some of their football games this year were airing promos for hockey games, and I thought, right. wow, that's incredible, you know, because we know how powerful the, the football audiences are. 
Yeah, they, you know, their, their, their number one priority is to somehow find a way to get people to watch the playoffs when, when their team is not in it. I mean, <clears throat> as long as the Rangers are in the playoffs, it's going to do extremely well in New York. And the second the Rangers are out, the numbers are going to plummet in a, to a greater extent than what happens in the NBA and the NFL. And, the, you know, hockey's goal is to try to make that drop-off less dramatic. I don't know if they can do it or not, but that's what that's the whole trick here. They're not worried about you know, people watching their local teams in the playoffs, because that, you know, most markets, that takes care of itself. And by the way, when they do get to the point where it's just sort of, Buffalo is always number one, almost always number one on the list of ratings for, you know, cities other than the cities involved in the, right. in the game. So Buffalo really is the number, I mean, to me, is the number one uh, hockey market in the country in terms of interest in the league itself, as opposed to just the local team. This is nothing to do with nothing, but I wanted to get your opinion on it. What, what did you think when you heard that Mario Williams, the number one free agent in the National Football League besides Peyton Manning, was going <laughs> to sign in Buffalo, New York? I'm just curious. Uh, well, I, I, was, I, mean, I was surprised like everybody else was, but I mean, I, I guess I go back far enough to think more highly of that franchise than you know, younger people do because you know, it hasn't done much lately. But I, um, yeah, I was surprised. I... I but didn't he, didn't he say in his press conference something like, oh, well, people say there's nothing to do, but, you know, you can get to, like, Toronto or New York easily or something like that? I was thinking, yeah, he mentioned Toronto, well, New York, and Boston. That right, I mean, I was thinking, well, that's not exactly the right thing to say. But He did mention how much he appreciated the kind of rural aspects of the suburbs here. Right. I guess they well, kind of took him to Jim Kelly's house, and they sold him because Jim Kelly had turkey and deer in his backyard, and that was big for him. I mean, I mean, to me, the, the you know, Buffalo has a double whammy problem. They've got you know a market, a city that a lot of players don't think that they be you know want to be in. But and then they, you also have an antiquated stadium. I mean, like Oakland and San Francisco both have horrible stadiums, but you know most players are going to not look are going to look positively on living in the Bay Area. So Buffalo, you got two things going against you. So yeah, the fact that I was surprised. I mean, I was happy because I'd like to see that market that that team do well. But yeah, I was surprised. <laughs> yeah, I, I was. Believe me, we were we were surprised too. I, th I think my partner, who's a big Bills fan, after the show last week, he was doing backflips down the uh, <laughs> the street that I'm looking at in front of me here. Because, uh, but you know, but then Robert Meacham, you know, kind of pulled the carpet under that, sitting in a Buffalo restaurant eating a steak and negotiating with another team, which is kind of uh, kind of a slap in the face. But it's Neil Best from New East Day. You can follow him on Twitter. He's at SportsWatch. Uh, does a great job covering the media, all things related to that. And as we discussed in the interview, extending his scope a little bit and doing some live events. How's Francesa doing these days? I always want to check up on what you think about, uh, uh, about Francesa. Well, today's his 58th birthday, so um, oh, happy birthday, you know, Mike. everybody needs to celebrate yeah, Francesa's birthday day. Um, I don't know. He's fine. He's <laughs> I I talked to him a few times at the Super Bowl on Radio Row, and uh, uh, I don't know. He's fine. He still says he's leaning toward leaving in uh, March of 2014, but you know we'll see. We'll see. He was cracking me up yesterday because he was go. He 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 wanted to talk about the NCAA tournament. And he was listing all these things he didn't like about it. And then when he got talking specifically about the teams, it seemed like he had no idea that North Carolina had suffered an injury to their point guard. You know, he was talking like about North Carolina like they had the same chances to win the tournament 
before the injury. Right. You know, and it was really strange to me because usually he's just so on top of things like that. But I still love him, and I still love the Mad Dog. And I don't know about you, but you mentioned Radio Row. I was I was thrilled even to get just 15 minutes of them together again. It, it was funny when they they met. The, the, you know, I was I was at the. Um... I was at the team press conferences and like on my way to the NBC uh, press conference, and I saw on Twitter that Russo was on Radio Row, so I ran over there and caught the last couple minutes live and then talked to Mike about it. But then I, I subsequently heard the audio. It was just hilarious how they, 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 they covered the entire an entire year of New York sports in like 15 minutes, just so like, you know, they just they start just just going through everything in like condensed time it was it was very amusing i i, I don't know last thing we'll get uh, you, oh go ahead is there something more you no, want to ahead. say okay i was just going to say we'll get you out here in this i was just going to ask you yesterday uh kind of a business question the mets uh settled out of court their birdie made off masses kind of behind them what 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 are the long-term kind of ramifications uh for the mets with this well, I mean that's a, that's a huge concern taken off their plate. Now they're just back to being a bad a bad a bad team that's you know with plummeting attendance and no money. So you know the, the, everything certainly isn't solved. However, um, you know a huge thing was taken off the plate. That whole thing was weird to me. I mean with all the rhetoric going back and forth, and then Picard just ripping them and all this stuff for over a year, and then suddenly overnight it's like ah yeah, don't worry about it. We're we're, we're cool. I mean <laughs> the whole thing was weird. Um, but yeah, you know, it's not obviously it's not shocking that they come to a settlement and not want to go through the trial. But the terms of it were kind of shocking, and at least it gives the Mets a chance to stabilize and try to build something there. But I don't know. I mean, the attendance—they rely a lot on the revenue from people being in that building, and they're not going to that building. So it's going to be very interesting to see what their attendance is like this year and how they're going to deal with that. Well, you know, they haven't been very kind to us here in Buffalo because we joined that organization, the Bisons, our AAA team, got in just in time for kind of everything to fall apart with the Madoff thing and hasn't been very pleasant here the last few years either in terms of uh, baseball. Do the Wilbons have a, or Wilpons have a chance to, uh, to, to get this back? Like, or do you think ultimately they need to sell this team? Uh, I mean, they got. I mean, it's a, <clears throat> the bottom line is they're still in New York. They still have you know huge revenues from their TV network. You know, there's no reason why they can't succeed. When you there's no there's no excuse for not succeeding eventually with a New York franchise, given all the resources at your disposal. So I think yes, I think they can get it back together. It's just going to take a while. So so when I was at Pilot Field in like 1991, yes, who, who were the Bison's affiliated with? Was it Pittsburgh? Yeah, we've had. It was Pittsburgh definitely in '91, and then we had a stretch with the Indians, yeah. and then right. now okay. the Mets. And then there because was there was talk that they were hoping for the Yankees uh, when the Mets' first two years went up, but that just wasn't going to happen. So they've re up right. with the Mets now for I think another two or four years. Because when I was there, they were still you know you know talking about the option of building another deck on it so they could be a major league team. Yep. And um, also, of course, you know, nobody but you and I knows that that was Camden Yards before Camden Yards was Camden Yards. Absolutely. It was built um, in 1988. Right. Yeah. Nobody, nobody remembers that except, well, people in Buffalo and old people like me. But 
um, yeah, that was the original retro stadium. So, and I love that you call it Pilot Field because yeah, I know. Well, because, I know it's had thirty-seven other names. Probably yes, since then, but. yes, it has. But I still call it Pilot Field because that's what it is to me. But I think right. right now it's called Coca-Cola Field. I believe. Oh, okay. well, it was. Yeah, wasn't it? Well, I can't even remember all the different names. But I, they, yeah, I still think of it as Pilot Field. So. Yeah, and our hockey arena, which is right down the street, has been. Originally the Crossroads, and then the Marine Midland Arena, and then the HSBC Arena, and now it's right. the first Niagara Center, which everyone is calling the Effin Center. I think the, uh, whether it was 99 or 04, one of those years that I was there for the NCAAs, they changed the name to HSBC like the night before the tournament started. It was one of those two yeah, years. Yeah, it was 04. Yep, 04. And then I was there for a Frozen Four, whenever Cornell was in it, in like 06. That was o- so? That was o- or, I don't, somewhere in there. I think it was o- o- five. I, I don't Minnesota know won it. Minnesota won it, and Vanek was the MVP of it. You know, I just remember Cornell getting losing to UNH or somebody on Thursday afternoon, and I went to the Anchor Bar, and then I just went home. I, just like, <laughs> I went to Duff's. I went to Duff's for the first time when the um, was it the Giants played the Bills this year? Or the Jets? I don't even remember. Well, both. <laughs> they were both the Giants played, there. Huh? Were the Giants there? Well, I was in Buffalo, and whenever they, you know, in October or so, and so I finally branched away from the Anchor Bar for another Wings experience. So. How good is Duff's? It was good. It was oh. a long wait on a Saturday night, but it was good. Oh, you got my mouth watering. <laughs> All right, again, it's at Sports Watch on Twitter. Uh, it's Neil Best. He's going to be covering Kentucky this weekend down in yep. Atlanta, Hot Atlanta. And uh, we really appreciate you being on the show. We're going to have to get you in the summer when we can talk a little bit more about the Olympics coverage because that really interests me for some reason. But uh, thank you very much for being on the show today. We really appreciate it. All right. See Uh, you. Thanks, Neil. All right. Real quick book club update. Thanks to Neil Boss for joining us. Uncle Neil. (laughs) Thank you very much. The book club, we are in the midst, getting towards the end of reading Wayne Gretzky's Ghosts and Other Tales from a Lifetime in Hockey by Roar McGregor. little story about the book club. Uh, we uh, mostly get these books that we read. We get them mailed to us by the publisher. And I went to the front door today to let my dog out this morning. And the UPS man had dropped off a package that was from one of the publishing companies that we work with. And I thought... Oh, cool, I haven't asked for anything, so what is this new latest and greatest book that we'll be getting? It's a nice big book. Yeah, it's, it had some weight to it. Uh, I was a little disappointed when I opened it to find out that it was Martin Rooney, creator of Training for Warriors, Wario Cardio, the revolutionary metabolic training system for burning fat, building muscle, and getting fit. It's a complete 12-week training program. Uh comes with a... Uh, press release here um what do we got uh he draws from over 20 years of experience having coached and trained numerous top athletes doesn't list any uh (laughs) provides useful insight into the importance of cardiovascular training but the scientifically proven techniques it offers when paired with a diet plan will give results um sure it's great yeah uh, not for us no we don't have a lot of uh Fitness? I'm not, even, uh, I'm, I'm not sure you'd really sit around and discuss a fitness book. 
Yeah, he is a Martin, the author, is a internationally recognized fitness and martial arts expert, the creator of the Training Warrior System. I'm sure he's great. Yeah, he's fantastic. Here's the point. If you want this book, email us. The sportscasters at gmail.com. I'd be glad to send it to you. Uh, I would I think we'd be doing the publisher a service if we can put this book in the hands of someone Somebody who would really be it. interested right. in it and would use it and then ultimately maybe recommend it sure. to other people that would be interested in it. Well they say twelve week plan? Yeah, twelve weeks. So by July, beach season? Yeah. Be you'll, you'll be ready. Like a warrior. So uh, if you are interested in this book, email us at sportscasters at g- gmail.com. And if we get a big response, uh, we'll just put all the names in the hat and pull one out. Sounds good. Okay, so that's available to you if you're interested. As for our current book club book of the month uh, by Roy McGregor, I've uh, basically finished it. Um, like I said, I was reading kind of article uh, by article, and I've gotten to the point where I'm done. Uh, it was a great read. I really enjoyed it. Like I said, in terms of for a hockey fan, it's so diverse in all the different uh, places that it goes in terms of talking about different players, talking about uh, different games, talking about different... There's even a really cool article I read in there about Haley Wickenheiser, one of the all-time great female hockey players, okay. uh, Canadian uh, so there's all kinds of great stuff in there. Again, I highly recommend it. We will set up an interview with Roy for next week's show, I assume. Like I said, we're pretty much done with that. And uh, we're in the market for a new book club, Book of the Month. If there's something that you think we should focus on or read, drop us a line and let us know. But that's the book club update for today. We're going to take a break, and we're going to come back and talk to Patrick Burke. <laughs> Our next guest is from Boston, Massachusetts, and is a graduate of Notre Dame University. Currently, he is a scout for the Philadelphia Flyers and the co-founder of the You Can Play Foundation. You Can Play is a bold new initiative that enlists NHL players to change the sometimes homophobic culture of locker rooms with a message that athletes should be judged on athletic skill and ability, not sexual orientation or other discriminatory factors. You Can Play has been featured by Phil Taylor in Sports Illustrated and on the Puck Daddy blog by Greg Wyshynski. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented Patrick Burke. How are you doing today, Patrick? Not bad. How about yourself? Doing very good. Very excited to have you on today. Um, you Can Play is something that uh, we just think is, is just a really, really fantastic uh, here at the Sportscasters, and, and maybe for those of our listeners who, who don't know the background, maybe you can just start off by saying where the idea for You Can Play happened and why the Burke family, your, yourself and, and your father, are so, uh, you know, the leaders in this, because I'm not sure that everybody knows the story. Well, the first person who was really associated with the National Hockey League to come out as openly gay was my younger brother, Brendan. Uh, he was a student manager at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. And while uh, he was a uh, junior there, he came out in a series of articles and interviews on uh, on ESPN.com and then on TSN and some other uh, things, uh, other media outlets. Um, unfortunately, just uh, a couple short months after that, he passed away in a car accident. Uh, along with a friend of his, Mark Reedy. 
And uh, since that time, it's been uh, important to us that uh, that Brennan's legacy live on and that the things that he stood for, uh, now now we have to stand for them in his place. You know, I remember I was leaving a Sabres game and it was we were we were waiting in a little bit of traffic and during the Sabres post game show the news had come out about your brother and the post game show kind of stopped and took a second to wish you and your family the best and it seemed like that was kind of a theme throughout the National Hockey League everyone really kind of rallied to support your family what did that mean to your family to know that the hockey world was really behind you and really supported you guys through that very difficult time? Well, the hockey community is uh, the best community in sports in terms of taking care of each other. And, uh, you know, I grew up in it. I've never really known a life without hockey. Uh, My dad's worked in it since I was born. So uh, I wasn't at all surprised to have the the support of, of so many, you know, kind and, and generous family friends, but uh, it's always nice and a little overwhelming to see uh, to see uh, hockey players rise to the occasion. Now, you through that tragedy came this great idea: you can play, and it's been pretty successful so far. I think you have over thirty NHL players involved. What has the response been in in terms of like players you ask and players that? agree to participate is it a large percentage a small percentage medium percentage uh, as of yesterday we're up to 40 committed nhl players uh who, who are part of the you can play team um and they're they're big big names too uh, you know there's obviously a mix uh, of players but they're they're superstars in here they're major award winners these are all stars these are captains um, you know, these are high-end players, and uh, the response has been uh, overwhelmingly positive. We've had players who heard about it who weren't in the first batch of PSAs reaching out to us to figure out how they can get involved. Um, the, the player response and the team response, the team support has been uh, been terrific. Yeah, I know Jason Pomaville from the Sabres and Zdeno Chara, and you know, these are some of the names as you mentioned that are a part of this. Now, here's, here's kind of a tough question maybe, but I wonder, you know, anyone can record a commercial and say that they stand for something. Do you get the sense that this is a genuine thing? I mean, do you get a sense that these guys who record a commercial would be the same guys who would welcome an out player into a locker room and stand up for them in that situation? Absolutely. Yeah. This, this isn't the type of commercial that guys would take a stance on, you know, there are certainly charity events out there where the PR person will pick, you know, will pick the player up 10 minutes before and say, okay, this is, you know, this is for so-and-so, go in, shake hands, smile, and then, and then you leave. Uh, for players to take a stand on this issue uh, is courageous. It shows that uh, that's something that, that they care about, and uh, especially you know guys like Pylonville and Char, who are the captains of their team. Uh, what they're saying with this is that they are going to stand up for their teammates. They are going to defend their teammates. And we're also seeing guys uh, giving follow-up interviews who are saying exactly that. Uh, the New York Islanders, Matt Molson and Franz Nielsen, gave a bunch of interviews where they explicitly said, oh, I'll stand up and defend a gay teammate. Um, 
Same with yesterday, uh, uh, a website in Canada posted an interview with Ryan Kessler and Henrik Sedin, both saying the exact same thing, that they would be happy to support an openly gay teammate and that, that their locker room would, would rally around their teammates. So this isn't something that guys are doing, you know, just to get their, their face on TV or anything like that. This is something that they believe in and they support, and uh, it's, it's a genuine expression of uh, support for the LGBT community. Based on your research and your studies, and I know that just my girlfriend asked me this last night. She's like, "Do you think that there's gay hockey players?" And, and my answer was, "Well, there has to be, just based on the the odds of it. You know, how many yeah. players there are compared to what the national average is." But someone who's been a, a part a part of you know researching this and studying this, what do, what do you think? I mean, how many gay players do you think there are living out there? You know, afraid to admit what they're, you know, what they're going through. At, at, at the National Hockey League level, in an average year, right around, it depends on the year, injuries and this and that, but anywhere between seven and 800 players play in the National Hockey League in a given year. Now, the genu- generally accepted number for the, you know, the general population is that about one in every 10 people is gay. But we know that's not the number in hockey because... It's really hard to be a professional athlete. It's, you know, you're talking about professional athletes are, are less than 1% of the population. These are the elites of the, the elites. And athletics has been somewhat self-selecting in terms of scaring off uh, gay, gay athletes and gay members. So it's probably not 1 in 10. It's, but even if it's, let's say, 1 in 100, so 1%, 1% of the NHL population is gay. That means in a given year we've got seven or eight players, and that's you know first of all if it was if it was one player who doesn't feel safe coming out, who doesn't feel like his teammates would accept him, one player is too many. But if it's seven or eight, you're talking about almost a quarter of teams in the league have a gay player. So I, I think most likely we've got somewhere around five to ten, five to ten players uh, just doing the numbers on it. But there's no way we're going to know that until guys start feeling safe to come out. You know, your brother, I believe, stopped playing hockey in high school. And I would imagine that's around the level where this gets really difficult for someone who, you know, high school kids, kids in general, we always hear people say, you know, kids can be really harsh and, and kids can yeah. be tough. Um, is, that the, is that kind of the thought behind the PSAs? Is that kind of the mission that we can use these elite athletes to speak to the younger kids, because those are the ones that we really need to reach, right? Those are the kids that you really need to try to get the attitude changed. That's where the real yeah. bullying is, if I'm if I'm thinking about this right. It's true. It's an interesting dynamic, because what you have is that the younger generation, uh, on any sort of issue related to the gay community, is overwhelmingly supportive. So at the college age, four out of five, 80%, of college students support full equality for for the LGBT community. That includes everything. That includes workplace equality. That includes gays in the military. That includes gay marriage. 80%. So we've got an overwhelming majority of younger kids who, who are supportive. And at the same time, we've got these really, we call it casual homophobia, where kids in the locker room are using gay slurs, are using... Uh, homophobic slurs, and they don't usually mean them 
in the in a gay say in a homophobic sense. So it's the kid who says, "Oh, that's so gay," when he means that's so uncool. Right. And what we have to educate kids on, what we're trying to educate kids on, is that for a gay athlete, there's no other way for them to take that. You can't say, "Oh, you know," you can't use a homophobic slur and then say, "Oh, I mean that in a different way." It's just not possible for a kid who's struggling for a kid who feels afraid. Uh, we would never allow someone to use a racial slur and then say, oh, I, I mean that in a different way. So what we're trying to educate these kids on, and by getting these star athletes and these role models on board, it, it certainly is part of it. That we want to educate them that uh, that athletes are, are more supportive. It's uh, Straight athletes have been conditioned to think that they're not supposed to be supportive, that they're not supposed to speak out, that that people will uh, will mock them if they stand up. And when we're trying to show them that, you know, at this point now 40 NHL athletes, uh, including some of the biggest, toughest, meanest, most well-respected uh, players in the, in the whole league, uh, disagree with that and then think that you should stand up for your teammates and you should stand up for your gay teammates and they should be able to play safely. So we're, we're hoping that uh, the younger generation can learn from that example a little bit. You know, I, I think about... Jackie Robinson and kind of the sacrifices that he made to break down the barriers for the African-American athletes in baseball. And, you know, there's an example in in hockey with Willie O'Reed. And I wonder, do you think it's going to take one player who, you know, feels so strongly about what, what he is and who he is and has the guts to take the initial lumps and then eventually it could be like it is now in baseball where it's just, you know, it's, it's not even an issue to have a team with mixed races and and in hockey. Do you think that's what it's going to take? Is it going to take a pioneer to really be willing to, to step up and do this? Do you envision that that's the way it happens? I, I think that's how it will happen, but I don't think that we should be waiting for that to happen. Uh, Actually, one of my heroes in the sports world, I love Jackie Robinson. One of my heroes is Pee Wee Reese, who was his shortstop, who was a white Southerner who made sure that every chance he got, he made a show of support for uh, for Jackie and uh, would go out and they'd have meetings at second base and then Pee Wee would put his arm around him and, and talk to him like that and let everyone in the crowd know that this was his teammate and he was there to defend him and he was there to, to stand with him. And what we're trying to do right now is get these NHL athletes on board to, to do that in advance of a player coming up, to stand up right now and say, these are my teammates, I will stand with them, I will support them, I will defend them, so that when we do get the first uh, the first openly gay male athlete in, in hockey or whatever sport it is, that they've already got that support system in place. You know, I know so far you guys are a younger campaign. You know, you guys are just getting things going, and it's been a great success so far. Do you plan on expanding to other sports? Someday are we going to see PSAs with, with baseball players or football players? Yes, we uh, we intend to expand into every sport at every level, and that's male and female sports, too. We're not just here for, for the male athletes. We're also going to be doing stuff with women's sports. Um what level of involvement the other professional leagues will have will still be uh, will be remains to be seen. Uh, we have had some some interest from some athletes and uh, some some leagues that want to want to talk and see if it's something that they want to get on board with. But uh, even if it's at the college level or the high school level or whatever, uh, we intend to 
to, to help athletes everywhere, all levels, all sports, all genders. Uh, well, after these PSAs are done, we're going to be releasing a playbook, which will be a guide uh, for coaches, fans, parents, athletes, administrators, uh, really the entire sports world, so that uh, they have a tool book for, for how to make their locker rooms or their arenas or or their programs uh, LGBT-friendly and, and safe. Uh, and we, we're going to write that with all sports in mind, not just hockey. So we, we do intend to work in other sports. You know, your brother was the manager for the Miami of Ohio hockey team, and that was a really special group. And a couple of guys come to mind, Andy Mealy and even Carter Camper, who uh, has gotten his feet wet in the NHL, scored an NHL goal. I actually seen him play an NHL game here in Buffalo. I think it was the second game. Those players that were so close with your brother at Miami of Ohio and now are making an impact in the AHL and eventually the NHL, do you see them as playing a really intricate role in this? Yeah, we have two uh, two members of the Miami University uh, hockey team who were there when Brennan was there, uh, Andy Mealy and Tommy Wingles, who now plays for the San Jose Sharks. Uh, those two were our founding donors. Um, they cut the first check for you can play. They are both on our advisory board uh, and, and serve a role advising us on, on what to do and how to do it and everything like that. And uh, Tom, we've already released uh, Tommy's PSA, which is one of the best PSAs that uh, that we'll ever do. Um, so the Miami Miami University guys, uh, in addition to those two, uh, Ryan Jones has filmed one. Andy Green has filmed one. Uh Jeff Zakoff of the Manchester Monarchs has reached out. Carter's reached out. Uh, that group of Miami University kids is a that's a special place, and they're a special group of kids. They really are. It's it's rare. Normally, when you go into any program, when there's 25 athletes, you get one or two guys who are bad guys or, or even average guys, and then somehow this class that came out with Brendan, uh, every one of them is just a great kid. So Miami will always have a special role in this for us. What can what can our listeners do? How can our listeners help? Uh, you know, I know obviously following on Twitter at you can play team, but is there a role for the fan, or is that something that's going to come down in the future? Uh, our site is built to upload uh, fan and and team videos. Uh, we we would like to to start seeing, and I know uh, one of the Toronto Maple Leafs blogs has started doing it, trying to put together. Uh, the first fan you can play video where um, fans express their support or youth teams or high school teams or young athletes anywhere who want to send in a video, uh, we can host uh, host those videos and and spread them around. So any fans or young athletes or anything like that who want to make their own videos, uh, we can host them on, on the site. Um, as you said, we, we've got the website, youcanplayproject.org, uh, with some uh, information and resources on there and helping us get the word out obviously is uh, the big thing right now where uh, you know we want athletes to hear about us and we want young athletes to hear about us and uh, so a lot of word of mouth would be would be nice right now you know uh, Greg Wyshynski did a great job uh, first of all having you got you on the uh, America versus Wyshynski podcast I thought that was great and uh, the article on, that appeared on the Puck Daddy blog was great and that kind of exposure is great but I'm sure there was a big smile on your face last week when 
Phil Taylor of Sports Illustrated's article came out on the back page. One of the that's you know in terms of sports journalism, that's like hallowed ground to be on that back page in Sports Illustrated. I thought Phil did a great job. What uh, were some other places that we might be uh, finding some exposure in the media? Is there anything else that should be coming out soon? And what was your uh-huh. reaction to Phil's uh, Phil's column? I Phil did a great job and was uh, very grateful to him and Sports Illustrated for, for covering us. Uh, uh, some of the other major newspapers, uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, they've all given us some coverage. Uh, long term, it looks like there may be something going with HBO Real Sports. We're still talking about that. Uh, ESPN has called to see about maybe ways they can get involved Uh we think that uh, this is an exciting project for a lot of people in the sports world, and uh, we expect that as we keep going here, more and more uh, groups will will pick up on us and uh, and start telling stories. And I, you know, hopefully soon, uh, it, it's not going to be the uh, the Patrick Burke show anymore. We'll have uh, more young athletes who can speak. To our advisory board will start telling their stories. And, uh, you know, long-term, as we have more and more athletes come out, then uh, we'll have lots of really interesting and courageous stories to share with people. The Sportscasters are here with Patrick Burke. Uh, it's You Can Play Team on Twitter, at You Can Play Team. You can follow Patrick. He's at Burke, B-U-R-K-I-E-Y-C-P on Twitter. Uh, the website, you want to give the website one more time? Yeah, youcanplayproject.org. Okay, and it's uh, like you said. There's a great spot on there where teams uh, can can upload videos and, and share stories. Uh, a couple of things, and we'll get you we'll get you out of here on, on these couple of things. Um, first, how you know? Tell us a little bit about your scouting for for the Flyers. You know, uh, what exactly is your role in the scouting department there, and uh, what do you have your eye on? I'm a pro scout in the New England area, so I do uh, the American League, the National Hockey League, and a decent amount of NCAA stuff in uh, in the New England area. So my job is primarily uh, when it's NHL or AHL, it's either free agents or trade targets. When it's uh, the college stuff, it's either watching drafted prospects or, again, watching uh, undrafted college free agents, which... Uh, has become a big market for NHL teams in the past four or five years. I'm sure you watch a lot of college hockey, and, and we had the uh, selection show on Sunday. Who do you think, uh, is there a team or two that you're looking to see in the tournament that you think can maybe win the national championship this year? Obviously, Boston uh, College is going to be a, a favorite. Yeah, I, I, obviously I'm cheering for Miami, but uh, I think uh, from having seen a bunch of teams around here, the way BC is playing right now, uh, Jerry york has got his guys well-focused and playing hard, and uh, they're tough to beat when they're on their game. Um, but there uh, should be an interesting series. Uh, it was a, a weird year in terms of having some of the non-traditional powers uh, up at the top, so I, I don't think anybody, not even BC, should feel safe. Uh, I think just about anyone can beat anyone right now. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I thought Union got a really favorable, favorable draw from the committee. They did. Uh, Rick Bennett there has done a great job uh, following in Nate Lehman's uh, footsteps there. Nate's now at Providence. Uh, but Rick's done a great job keeping his guys focused. they got a, uh, a good, hard-working team. They play hard. Uh, I wouldn't want to face them. I know that. 
All right, again, it's Patrick Burke. I want to give the na- the uh, Twitters again. It's it's at Berkey with the I E uh, Y C P and uh, at You Can Play Team. Anything else I missed about the foundation? Anything else that our listeners should know or go or anything like that? No, I'm uh, I'm very proud of our website. I know people have been watching the videos, and I hope some of them are taking the time to to look through some of the things we have to offer on there. Uh, I think people can expect our next PSA. Uh, later this week, maybe either Thursday or Friday, with uh, two more NHL All-Stars will be appearing in this one. Uh, and those are, that's two names we haven't released yet, so it'll be a, a nice surprise for some fans. On, uh, on Thursday or Friday, I think we'll probably get it out. Thank you, Patrick. Thanks a lot. All right, we have to thank Patrick Burke for joining us today. Also, thanks to Damon Hack and Neil Bass for being on the program. A couple of things before we get to pick four. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash thesportscasters. Also, we're on Twitter at sports underscore casters. You can email us, especially if you're interested in a new book, Warrior Cardio, <laughs> thesportscasters at gmail.com. Also, our blogs, thesportscasters.blogspot.com and thesportscasters.tumblr.com. Our website where you can find all this information is www.sports-casters.com. I guess, Don, since the contract is in the mail, it's about time to formally announce that starting April 1st, we will be doing a second podcast each week that will be exclusively hosted by footballnation.com, which is a subsidiary of Cold Hired Football Facts. Kerry J. Byrne, who's been on the show a bunch of times, is, I guess, going to be our boss now. <laughs> and that podcast is going to focus on football. And it's going to be very similar to this one, except shorter. What we're going to do each week is we're going to have a football-centric three things to start the show. Then we're going to have an interview for the week with someone from the football world. And then we're going to end the podcast with uh, maybe a couple predictions or something like that and kind of sign off. So it's going to be a 30 to 45 slash 60 minute podcast. Do they have any fantasy coverage? Maybe we'll do a little. We'll probably do some fantasy still in there for sure. Uh, But it's definitely a great opportunity for us. Something we're looking forward to. Football Nation is a great site for anyone. I get asked once in a while by people, what did you do to start this or, you know, basically what we did is we just went out and did it. And that's what Football Nation offers people the opportunity to do. And that's just to go out and do it. Just start writing about the National Football League. You can sign up for an account. It's very similar to, I guess, Bleacher Report, but maybe more focused on football. Sure. Uh, so I encourage you to check out footballnation.com. Uh, set up a account there. Uh, write with us and certainly follow us over and listen. We're really excited about the opportunity. We want to thank Kerry J. Byrne for that. And we're looking forward to uh, to doing the podcast. All right, last piece of business for this podcast is pick four. Don and I both went two and two last week to bring our cumulative records to 28 and 17 and 18 and 28. I was victorious with Kansas State over Southern Miss, uh, 70 to 64. Also, Iowa State. Did beat Connecticut, as I thought, 77-64. to 64. My bold prediction was that Syracuse would miss 
the Sweet 16. And basically, they survived thanks to the officials and some <laughs> clutch baskets down the stretch in the first round, beating UNC Asheville. And then they kind of flexed their muscles oh, the second in the round, second dude. half. Right, yeah, the <laughs> second round. That's right. Uh, the first round was that stuff that went on in Dayton that no one paid attention to earlier in the week. Uh, but in the third round, then, they flexed their muscles in the second half and blew out Kansas State. I also missed the game of the week. Harvard did not beat Vanderbilt. They made a push at the end but got held off 79-70. to That was Don, one of Don's wins correctly with Vanderbilt there. And he won his bowl prediction of VCU over Wichita State. 62 to 59. I know. Going 2 and 2 in a week, you get your bold prediction isn't good. Yeah, and the reason you went 2 and 2 is because the Penguins shit the bet on you. They did. They were ahead 2 nothing in this game. Yeah, I watched that game. They ended up losing a 3 to 2 with shootout? one second left. Oh, no, in that's overtime. Right. Scott that's right. Hartnell scored. Ugly Scott Hartnell. And then uh, the Knicks, Lynn Sanity, had 19 points and beat the Pacers 102 to 88. Yeah, like you said, that was the day after they, they got moved a new coach. The coach so right? that's, so that's, that's never the wrong good. side of that. All right, the game of the week this week, uh, we're going to stick with the tournament in the South region. It's number four, Indiana, at number one, Kentucky. I'm going to go chalk here. That's a Friday game, 945 on CBS. Give me Kentucky. We've mentioned a few times on this podcast that Kentucky had a huge winning streak that started on December 10th. And that they needed to lose. The team that they <laughs> lost to on December 10th was Indiana. Yeah. But that game was in Indiana. Indiana won it on a buzzer-beating three-point shot. Not going to happen this time around. Indiana has been a good story this year, kind of returning to relevance. We talked about that with Dave Damashek a few weeks ago. Uh, but Kentucky's too much. They're the best team in the nation. And they got that loss out of the way in the SEC tournament. Uh, I'm with Don. I'm going to agree that Kentucky's going to win this game, re- I think, relatively easily. My host choice this week, I'm going to go with the hometown Sabres uh, against Montreal on Wednesday night. Look, the Sabres have a chance to pull even with whoever happens to be in the eighth spot at the time, Winnipeg, Washington. And I know Winnipeg and Florida both play really tough games tonight in uh, Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, both on the road. Washington's still on the road for another game or two. If you're going to make your move, you're going to do it against a weak Montreal team in your own building. Have to win that It's games game. like these that if you don't win them, you don't deserve to be in the playoffs. So give me Buffalo at home tomorrow. All right, my host choice is a West Region game. I'm going to pick number 7, Florida, over number 3, Marquette. The game's going to be played on Thursday the 22nd. It's a 10-17 start on CBS. I just think Florida's been the more impressive team in the tournament. Marquette's had two really close victories, and uh, Florida has played very impressively. So I'm going to pick Florida to beat Marquette. My worldwide leader pick is a Thursday 7-15 on CBS game at Syracuse at Wisconsin. I'm going to take Wisconsin, and it's basically... More of a pick that with Syracuse, I'm just waiting for the wheels to come off of this thing. They've had so many distractions that they've had to play through. They had to win a game that everyone thinks they shouldn't have. They finally had a good half of basketball the next night. Uh, But they haven't played anybody really of this caliber yet. Wisconsin wins ugly. I think they can uh, just do enough to beat Syracuse. The wheels have got to fall off at some point. All right, I'm going to, uh, for my world leader pick, take number two, Ohio State. It's an East Region game over number six, Cincinnati. It's Thursday, 945 on CBS. Pretty great story in the state of Ohio. Four uh, teams in the Sweet 16 are from the state of Ohio. It's Ohio State, Cincinnati, Xavier, and Ohio. Obviously, Ohio State is the 
the best of those teams. Cincinnati's been a, a good run. They went through the Big East tournament and won it. Got a number six seed. Had a great weekend, but I think this is where it ends. is a great player. Ohio State, I think, is really impressive to me. So I'm going to pick them to beat Cincinnati. All right, my bold prediction staying in Ohio. I don't love this, but it's hard to come up with little predictions. Like we said, there's not really any true Cinderella's. This might be the closest thing to it. So I'm going to take number 13, Ohio, over number one, UNC. That's a Friday night game with a 747 tip-off. Nice, right. Nice of time there. Yeah. All, right. All right. I thought you had more, but I guess not. <laughs> no, right. it's, just, it's, it's a pick that's just bold for being bold. I don't really have a, a great reason for it. All right. My uh, bold prediction is in the Midwest region. Uh, number 11, North Carolina State, over number 2, Kansas. Kansas is another team. It hasn't been very impressive in the tournament. Uh, Purdue had a chance to beat them. and Especially like considering they were everyone's pick, basically. Just everyone thought they were going to roll through it. Yeah, and they, they haven't. So I'm going to pick number 11, North Carolina State, who President Obama was one of the <laughs> 18% of people on ESPN.com to, still, yeah. to have them in the Sweet 16. So I'm going to roll... I don't know if President Obama had him winning this game or not, but I'm gonna I'm gonna take North Carolina again. Maybe uh, being bold for the sake of being bold. Right. Yeah. You know, it's a nice thing about this tournament. It gives you a chance to be on the side of the underdog and uh, sure. cheer for him. Yeah, so I don't have not. a I don't have a real reason to cheer for for Kansas. So if at ten seventeen on TBS <laughs> I uh, decide to flip this on, I'll have a reason to cheer for them. All right, that's gonna do it for the show today. Again, I want to thank. Damon Hack, Neil Bust, and Patrick Burke. Don, you can cue the hip. All right.